and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are embarking on another deep dive into the career of one of the greatest directors of all time. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host um, and voiceover artist here in San Diego, California, and excited to be opening yet another season uh, on The Cinephiles of a fantastic director and a director that has influenced a lot of us, uh, I would say, over Absolutely. the decades. Uh, to um, fall in love with film, different types of film, and challenge us whether he succeeds or doesn't succeed in his in our appreciation of the medium of film. And, and this one, strangely enough, came about very much the same way it did last year when we selected Quentin Tarantino, which is that every year we put out our annual listener survey, and we did just put it out, mm -hmm. uh, and so you can fill out this year's. And last time, there were a whole bunch of Tarantino movies picked, and so we went, well, we'll do a deep dive on Tarantino. Well, this year... The, we've already done Wolf of Wall Street as our first 2013 movie. Yes. And the movie that was most requested from our early episodes where we didn't do quite as extensive deep dives that they wanted us to redo, our fans wanted us to redo Goodfellas. And we yeah. thought, well, Wolf of Wall Street, we've already done Goodfellas. I think we're going to do a deep dive into the work of Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to have a lot of fun diving back into um, Scorsese's uh, films and, and revisiting some of the ones we've already spoken about. Um, because what's great about when we revisit Steve too, is we're also, we're older, we're yeah. different. We And so it's fun to bring different perspectives to it than we had when we first recorded um, our episode on Goodfellas and what have you. I, it, it's funny. I, I think this is the most intimidated. I, and I would say I was really intimidated when in moving into, actually, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to take it all back. I've been intimidated <laughs> every single time I was intimidated because it was when we were doing citizen Kane, that was the first time we ever did this. Yeah. It was the first time we broke a movie into two parts. Yeah. I was intimidated when we did Alfred Hitchcock because we had never done Hitchcock. Sure. I was intimidated when we did Kurosawa because it's Kurosawa for God's sake. I was intimidated when we did the Godfather and Coppola <laughs> because people have been asking about that forever. Yeah. I was intimidated when we did Spike Lee because obviously the, those films are controversial and deal with very very complicated issues i was intimidated when did tarantino for a similar set of reasons and now i'm intimidated again when we're doing martin scorsese because the the scale of this guy's career yeah. is kind of mind-boggling when you look at it yeah absolutely and you know i can't i don't think i can go back to a time where i remember uh movies without Scorsese. And by that, I mean, sure, I can remember being a child and watching movies, but understanding or appreciating films like that was my birth. And so I don't remember existing in a world of loving movies and understanding how to analyze movies without having Martin Scorsese to be someone I can reference or go back to or, or whose work I can rewatch or interviews I can read or watch as well to give me some perspective on film because Martin is so, so great at speaking about more than just his own movies. He's great oh, at yeah. talking about the history of movies and there have been suggestions for films that he has uh, thrown, um, you know, in interviews and in conversation that have sent me down wormholes for, of actors and directors and um, uh, movies that I would have never maybe opened the door to, including Akira Kurosawa, who Scorsese mm -hmm. was a massive fan of uh, and spoke about many, many times. I, I think I'm going to say mm. that I think Martin Scorsese is in the top five guests I would love to have on the cinephiles. I mean, he's the, he'd be one of the, yeah, ultimate. yeah, yeah I know. Right. <laughs> well, Martin, we're ready. We can, we can work yeah. our schedule anytime really. Um, yeah, I, I agree. He is, he is one of those. And I was thinking about it too. Mm. There are only a few filmmakers that I think made 
consistently important films over as long a period as Scorsese. I mean, you know, yeah. Kubrick made great films, but he didn't make that many great films. Right, right. When we talked about Tarantino, we talked about nine films. When we talked about Wells, it's like, well, Wells is the journey of Orson Wells. Yeah. You know, Hitchcock, yes, he consistently made important films through his almost his whole career. Spielberg yeah. is one, Kurosawa is one. Maybe John John Ford is another. Yeah. There, there's not that many, but Billy Wilder. I think Billy Wilder's one too for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But and it's like, so you know, people there there is a movie that he just made that is certainly an Oscar contention. It's not particularly my favorite film of his, but you know, that's a long career where this guy is making important film. Uh, well, and I think this is the first time, Steve, that we have done a season for someone who actually has a film currently out um, that we can also discuss within our discussion of uh, um, uh, a, this director. I don't know if yeah. I'm right or wrong on that. I don't know. I, I don't think we have. I mean, yeah. I, you know, Tarantino didn't have a film out when we were talking about him and I, Spike Lee didn't have one. That was that certainly was not one that was an Oscar contention. Right, it wasn't right. that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, so no, and, and the other guys weren't alive. So, <laughs> oh no, Coppola, Coppola was alive, Coppola, but not making yeah. a lot of films at the moment. True, um, true. <laughs> so let, John, let me ask you, yeah. how did you first come to Martin Scorsese? I think, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Raging Bull. Mm, um, wow. Yeah, I think that was my first exposure to Martin Scorsese. I don't know. I was like into my teens. And I remember that film being something that, you know, because I was reading film magazines uh, that I could get my hands on and I could sneak around in the small town of Virginia at the time, small town of Virginia, that I could sneak around the um, magazine stand in the store and just stand there and read because, you know, we were poor. I couldn't afford to pay for some of these magazines at the time. So I would just read what I could or go to the library and read whatever magazines that were four or five months after they'd come out, you know, and and I remember that Raging Bull was a film that that people spoke about that I that I needed to watch. And so I just remember renting that probably from Video World, for those of you who remember Video World on the East Coast and in Virginia specifically, and sitting down and watching it. And because it was a sports film, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Boxing, <laughs> black and white sports. So I'll get the auteur, you know, kind of filmmaking aspect of it all, but also the rousing sports story and that is not what i got (laughs) it was such a to use a a a term that is connected to that film it was such a punch in the face to watch that movie because it asked a lot of a kid like i think i was 15 14 15 when i watched that movie or 16 the first time and it asks a lot of you to look at a guy's life and see the um uh, uh terrible relationship with his brother the jealousy all of that, that's those all new, very adult emotions for a teenager who is also trying to kind of understand his own emotions. You know, I have a fractured relationship with my brother, so there was elements of that. I was emotional. I could be aggressive when I was younger because I had a lot of self-hatred. And so I didn't understand that, though, as I was watching the movie. For me, it was more just like kind of like, wow, what is happening here? The slow motion the um the way the blood was shot in the movie the fighting sequences the jarring changes in tone uh, and switches and cuts um and then leading to that um heartbreaking moment of of um cons- uh, 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 what can, what can you, reconciliation uh, that whether you want to say it's full reconciliation but attempted reconciliation and then seeing at the ending there which was um pretty sad in some ways uh it, to what he ended up Versus what he could have been. And so, um, yeah, I'm sorry to go on a long-winded thing, but that's how it okay. came 
to Martin Scorsese. And from there, I went into Mean Streets and then started watching all of his other stuff uh, as it was currently coming out from that point forward. Yeah. What about you? I, I am not sure. I don't remember. <laughs> I, you know, normally I have a good memory for this stuff. I think it was either Taxi Driver Ooh, in high school. Right on. Or it was After Hours which I saw in oh, the yeah. dorm room my freshman year in college. So that's 86. Right. Like I don't, and cause I can remember watching taxi driver on the couch in my family room in my mom's house. Yeah. I remember that. And I remember of course seeing after hours, which is a movie that really messed me up that I really loved at that time, but I'm not sure which one happened first, but right. I do know yeah. that it, those two films, obviously they're very different. I didn't understand that movies could be like that. Right. You right, know what I mean? Right, right, right. Because yeah. I didn't see, and I had seen, like, I think I had seen things like The Godfather, and I had seen One right. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I'd yeah. seen a bunch of 70s cinema before mm -hmm. that. But Scorsese is something else. Definitely those, you know, the, the Taxi Driver, obviously a film of the 70s, but yeah, yeah. but he's a whole other thing. And I wanted to we'll do some uh, bio of him. And yeah, like please. most of the people we've talked about, we found things, I found things in their childhood that are like, this is the formation, you know, mm -hmm. Orson Welles and his father and the school that he was sent off to Kurosawa and the Tokyo earthquake and the death of his brother, Alfred Hitchcock yeah. being put in a jail cell, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino with the way he was raised and the men he was interacting with. There are always these things. And with Martin Scorsese, that's really true, too. He was, he was born in Queens in 1942, grew up in Little Italy. His parents both worked in the garment district. All four of his grandparents are Italian immigrants from Sicily. Hmm. And as a kid, he had very bad asthma. And because he had very bad asthma, he couldn't play sports and take part in all the kids' activities. And so his parents took him to the movies. Yeah. And right from the beginning, he was an obsessive movie watcher. Every time he could go see films, he would go see films. And he would see them over and over and over and over again. And because of his health and the asthma and because he wasn't hanging out with all the kids, <clears throat> and this is something I completely relate to, is he was an outsider. Mm -hmm. And as an outsider, that formed him because, and this is what he said, he said he had to figure out who he was and how he fits into the world. And that's totally my experience, you know, like being shy and not having a lot of friends at a certain point in my childhood and going like, like trying to work and figure out like, how does the world work? And, and the other thing that he was around, and this is what I mean by those things that formed him, mm -hmm. is that he was educated by priests, one priest in particular, Father Principe. Principe or Principe, I don't know how to say his name, mm -hmm. super important in his life. But then he's also around gangsters his whole childhood. Yeah. And they knew him and he knew them and they would do nice things for them. And it wasn't until he was older that he realized that these were monsters. Yeah. You know, they were guys in the neighborhood who he liked and liked him. And that, I mean, how could you get more Martin Scorsese than the priest yeah. and the gangster? Yeah. Well, and the thing that's so fascinating when you look at his life story and, you know, you read the books or you watch the documentaries that have been done on him, and there have been so many, like those one-hour yeah. documentaries or half-hour documentaries, is he was obsessed with films, as you mentioned, Steve, from a very early age. Oh, and yeah. in this way, cinephiles, no matter if they accomplish winning Oscars or just regular people working regular jobs, um, have a kinship, have a bond. This idea of falling in love with movies, it makes you even more of an outsider mm. to people who don't. And I imagine at the time that he was growing up, there weren't that many cinephiles who were sitting there talking about the artistry of film. 
that he could talk to. And he was obsessed with this. Like he was obsessed with historical epics. He was obsessed with films like Black Narcissus and Red Shoes. So clearly he understood. He was one of these guys that was tapped very early with a knowledge and appreciation of movies. And I wonder if, you know, being the son of the of of these um of these immigrants from Italy, if being the, uh, educated by a priest, if all of this led him to believe that he had this gift that was given by God and they had to mm. honor this gift uh and um maybe touched by God in a way and this is what influenced him to become an artist and kept him doing it because he felt that there was um, a responsibility to the gift that he was given. I don't know. Uh, you know, I've never spoken with him. I don't think if I've ever read an interview where he has said that, but I would imagine, as you said, the influences of someone in a situation like that, you know, me being the son of immigrants, me being the son of a father who was devoutly religious, constantly read the Bible on Sundays and every other time that he could read the Bible I understand what it's like, the pressure of wanting to, uh, of, of feeling this need to succeed, but also like you've got to do it the right way and you've got to honor these principles. And so I can, but I can't even imagine growing up around gangsters and what that situation is like, which of course we see a microcosm in the openings of, of Goodfellas, you right. know, the opening of Goodfellas when we see him, the young kid, young Henry being around all of that, you know? And so it's just fascinating that he was able to have access to the dark and the light at the same time during right. a formative time in his life. Um, I don't have an answer to whether or not he felt a calling, so to mm. speak, as you said, but I do. And my brain just keeps going back to that, the Albert Brooks documentary, which we just talked about where, where he's talking to Rob Reiner and they're talking about the strange choices that Albert Brooks made in his career. And Albert Brooks says, Oh, you think I have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about Martin Scorsese. I don't yeah. think he had a choice. I think yeah. that it was like, this is just, I mean, and, and, and he did, want to be a priest yeah and went into the seminary in sort of the preparatory year and yeah. he flunked out you know yes. like he ju he just wasn't that wasn't his destiny and you know he, of course he's continuing to watch films because at this point he's discovering italian neorealism and mm -hmm. the french new wave and fellini and antonioni and bergman and as you mentioned before kurosawa yeah. and at the same time as a kid he's an altar boy and i think the experience of being within that not just in the religious world, yeah. but in the show business of the religious world, yeah. is that he was fascinated by the light and the language and the music and the the stateliness and the performance of it all like that. And I think all of that stuff comes together in bringing him where he ends up going. He uh, went to Washington Square College, got a BA in English, and then he goes to get his master's in cinema at NYU. And he says that school saved him, you know. That's oh, yeah. I um, imagine so, because you have someplace to go with that desire and that love of film, someplace to put it, and maybe other people who share that with you. So you have some semblance of a community here with all of this. And I do want to say real quick, Steve, like the idea that he wanted to be a priest makes all the sense in the world, because clearly there is something within him that desires to preach to others about something that he loves. And you could argue that his movies, in a way, are preaching to those of us who love movies about something he loved. Mm. Oh, that's right. an interesting way to put it. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's right, because he's not just a – he's not a hired director. Like, he's not a hired hand. He's an oh. auteur. Yeah. And an auteur has something to say within their films. And I think with the priesthood, that is something that he would be doing the same thing. I have something to say about the Bible, about God, about Jesus Christ, about the people in the Bible. It is preaching and – 
the Bible has, uh, I mean, sorry, church has presentation, tradition, rituals, you know, yeah. the, the robe has to look a certain way, you know, it can't be ratty, it's got to be ironed. So there's all this presentation in a way in church that mirrors what you might see in a movie in terms of costume and outfits and all of these kinds of things. So it makes sense that he would have um, uh, an approach to it in that way. Well, and I just keep going to the gangster and the priest and mm. both have codes of honor. Yes. And both have conflicts within those codes of honor. And will they live up to those codes of honor? And I right. think, you know, and that's things that you see in, well, not all of his movies, but many, many of his movies is the internal struggle yeah. with what is right or what should I, sh what should I be or how am I supposed to behave? Um, one of the stories I like, obviously his, his parents are huge influences on him yeah. and, and appeared in his films, uh, particularly his mom, obviously, is there's a story that he'd hang out with his dad and something would happen in the neighborhood and his dad would tell a story and he says, ah, that's a great story. Of course, you could never make a movie about something like that. And this is when he's in NYU and he's watching films of the French New Wave and Italian neorealism. And he starts to ask the question of, well, why not? Right. Why can't you make a movie about that? Yeah. Um, he, he, he got some attention with his initial shorts out of NYU and I've seen some of them and having watched many student films, these are better <laughs> than most of them. Um, I didn't know that he worked as an editor for CBS news mm, yeah. and CBS news offered him a job, full-time job benefits be great. And he turned it down. Yeah. Uh, in 1967, he makes his first feature, which is Who's That Knocking at My Door, which I saw a long time ago, but I haven't mm -hmm. seen, didn't see recently. I did rewatch a bunch of stuff, but Harvey Keitel is in that, and Thelma Schumacher is his editor on that film. And I'm going to say this right now. Scorsese has several people that he worked with many, many times. Obviously, mm -hmm. De Niro, DiCap DiCaprio, and Keitel being three of them. But I think there's an argument to be made that Scorsese and Thelma Schumacher is the greatest partnership in cinema history i think it's in, i think it's in contention for sure to you can make a strong case that it is the greatest and if not one of the greatest relationships in film ever um because those films are so incredibly well edited and to find someone who understands your language and how to speak your language i think is probably essential for an auteur filmmaker coming out. And I'm sure Scorsese, for all his desire to say things, also had a worry and a concern and an insecurity that people would even watch his stuff, as all great artists usually yeah. have. So having someone there who's at least in the pit with you, in the trenches with you, that you can trust is an invaluable resource when you're learning how to uh, find your voice as a filmmaker. And, and the editing room is where you make movies work. Yes. Movies don't work when you shoot. You might have a fantastic De Niro performance on the set. Right. But you got to put the thing together and make it happen. And and, and I'll, just, I'll just say this right at the beginning. We talked a lot about directors that are tyrants, you know, like yeah. with Ridley Scott or Kurosawa or Kubrick or, you know, who, who can be really scary on the set. And we've talked about a few of the directors who are really friendly, like Ron Howard or Rob Reiner or people like that. I didn't realize until starting this research, yeah. Scorsese's on the friendly side. Mm -hmm. Scorsese is beloved. His sets are a joy. Yeah. Because in my brain, because his movies are so dark, I just assumed he was dark and angry and brooding. And that's not how he is at all. People have a ball working with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever seen anyone say, 
anything negative about him. They may say negative things about the actors, you know, that are in his movies, but they never, almost never say anything negative about being on the set with him. And I think another element of this, Steve, as we mentioned, Thelma Schoonmaker, like, what is it like in the 1960s to have a female editor? It must have been such a... Actually, that's not true. It's oh, really? pretty common. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, women editors throughout film history. Thanks for correcting me. I because it was considered... Because, like, uh, Verna Fields is Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. There were a lot because it was consi- it's such a meticulous job yeah. that it wasn't very sexy, basically. And so there were a lot of women who did the job because a lot of guys didn't really want to do it. And I um, bet there were a lot of women who wanted to be filmmakers, but, of yeah. course, the doors were not open for them. So editing is the next best thing you could essentially do and feel like you had an, um, a hand in creating this movie. Um, and by the way, Th- Thelma Schumacher sounded like she kind of started doing film stuff sort of on a whim and ended up in this sort of New York summer program. And that's where she met Marty and just went, this guy is head and shoulders above anybody else I've ever met. It's crazy how that can work out for you. And I'm going to say this because I just recently watched an episode of Graham Norton on TikTok and they had these little two or three minute episodes on, on, on TikTok and their clips from the main episodes. Tracy Ullman was on there. Mm. Um, I'm listening to her because I love Tracy. I think she's very funny. She's talking about all the characters on the, and Graham asks her about the Simpsons. And she said the re the only reason that Julie Kavner voices Marge Simpson is because I was doing already so many characters on the show. I needed somebody to voice it over. And I was like, Julie, do you want to do this? And she's like, ah, yeah, sure. I'll do it. And then Dan was doing smaller characters on my show as well. And then, and I said, do you do, what do you want? And he jumped at the chance just to do more work. Right. So it was not like they had a massive casting call, put this all together. These are people in rep on the Tracy Ullman show who just happened to be at the right place at the right time and do a great job. That's can't, you can't deny that. And that's what ended up setting them up for the rest of their lives, still making Simpson uh, episodes. So it's just crazy luck sometimes who you can fall in with, but you've got to be ready for that moment, whether you, whether you know the moment is coming or not, you know? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I think, I always knew that luck was involved, but it was it wasn't until like being here for a while that I went, oh, there's a lot of. I mean, there's because some of the stories of how someone got discovered, yeah. it's just like there's no way that you know, like a thousand to one chance that that was going to happen. Well, let me ask you one more thing: Do you think we have Martin Scorsese today without Thelma Schoonmacher? So I, I actually think we do because the, she did not edit some of the earlier films. So okay. so she edits Who's That Knocking on Your Door, and then I don't think she comes back to edit again until maybe taxi driver wow. so I, she, I don't think she edited mean streets I, okay. I mean so like i do but 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 that being said i don't think we we would be doing a season of scorsese without her well this is even more reason because i'm not a fan of the earlier stuff i'm not a fan until a schoolmaker shows up here for taxi driver if that's what it is i think it's that's when i start to fall in love i mean mean streets is yeah after I do, it's it's schoolmakers editing that i think ends up making me fall in love with scorsese even more you know, I uh, listen, and I would love that would be man to sit in that room mm. and hear those two people how they think about cut and film. Yeah, I uh, because I it would be talk about a masterclass, right? You know, hundred percent. Um, except they might not even speak to each other at this point, like because they're just telepathically linked. <laughs> um, you might be sitting in silence <laughs> because I don't know the longest amount of time I, uh, you've ever sat in an editing room, but it is uh. It, it is intense. It my is office. Intense. That's yeah. the longest amount of time I've sat in an editing room is my office. Um, 
So, uh, and then Marty moves out to LA where he makes a couple of besties with guys like Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. And then Brian De Palma introduces him to this young actor named Robert De Niro. One other thing is uh, Thelma Schumacher uh, gets hired and Martin Scorsese with director Michael Watley to go out to film this concert up in upstate New York called Woodstock. So Marty and Thelma are there trying desperately to make this movie. And then both Thelma and Marty are editors on Woodstock, um, which is a remarkable film, by the way. Yeah, guys, if you have never seen Woodstock, it is a very long documentary, but it is an incredible documentary about that time. Rarely do they make good documentaries about film festivals. That one and the Monterey Pop ones are the top two, in my opinion, that I've ever seen. So, and I will tell you my tiny, tiny connection to this, mm. which is the producer of Woodstock, the guy who bought the footage and nope. then hired uh, Thelma and Marty and a bunch of other people to cut it, yeah. is Fred Weintraub. Oh. Fred Weintraub is the was the owner of the Bitter End, the famous club in New York, where Woody Allen and all sorts of other people were playing. And then he came to Hollywood, where he produced an- another little film called Enter the Dragon. Oh, yeah. And I and he apparently on his lot on Universal would just randomly dose people with acid when they came into his office, because <laughs> you know that's cool. <laughs> And I worked for Fred Weintraub in the early 2000s and wrote a screenplay that he screwed me out of credit on that has been made. There's a film of mine that does not have my name on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's terrible. I watched it once when I was very, very drunk. Stars Lance Hendrickson. Um, (laughs) It's called, what the fuck's it called? Dream Warrior. It's called Dream Warrior. Dream Warrior. Yeah, it is. uh, Remember one of the things, I'll just say very briefly. One of the characters was the... Handsome 25-year-old martial arts expert named Yoshi. Okay. It was like a post-apocalyptic mutants on a run movie. Sounds and sounds genius. Yeah. Would you like to know who was cast in that part? <laughs> who was cast in the in Isaac the Hayes part? Who? Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes of all people. Love it. <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, the movie's wow. horrendously awful. But I did experience have the Fred Weintraub experience. He didn't actually dose me with acid. But what I did find out is there's a moment in Mean Streets, because Martin Scorsese at this time, when he's making yeah. Mean Streets, is sleeping on Fred's couch. Wow. And that there's this moment where De Niro brings some young women into the bar and introduces one of them as Sandy Weintraub, because that's Fred Weintraub's daughter. Oh, wow. He's in Mean Streets. Anyway, but before we get to Mean Streets, after yeah. Woodstock, he makes a little film for Roger Corman called Boxcar Bertha, mm-hmm. which I have never seen. Have you ever seen it? No, I have no desire to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's starring Barbara Hershey. And what's the most important thing about this movie is that during the shooting of this, Barbara Hershey gives Martin Scorsese a book called The Last Temptation of Christ. Wow. That's where they. That's where he read this book and becomes <laughs> obsessed with making this film for the next couple of decades. Right. And this also tells me, how can I say this correctly? Because I don't want people to think I'm having any hubris when I say this. But like this, as a guy who is also a lapsed Catholic, I would say, although I do believe in God, I believe in talents of my religion, but I also love film. I love to explore religion through film and Last Temptation of Christ. So I feel a kinship with Marty that something like that would uh, excite him as opposed to offend him. And I think that speaks to an artist. An artist is open to explore these things and question their own faith, question their own beliefs, question what they've been told versus um, 
uh, what, uh, yeah, versus not doing that. And I think that's great that Marty got connected to this book very early in his life. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Uh, we brought it up already, and you you sort of expressed a little bit of mm-hmm. your feelings about it. But 1973, he makes Mean Streets. Mm-hmm. I so I I did rewatch a, a smattering of Scorsese mm-hmm. movies before doing this. There was no way I was going to rewatch all of them. <laughs> um, and I wa- I watched Mean Streets. Yeah, I think I, I don't love the movie. No, but I think in terms of the setting, the world, and the style you can see this is this filmmaker. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is a practice for the real game. And when you're watching it, you can tell that. You can see that. This is almost like Steve, like you would know as a writer, right? This is a this is a this is a draft. This is a draft of the great films that he's going to make down the road. And you can see the elements of what he's going to do, where he's going, and that he's going to mature even more once he gets um uh, older once he gets more perspective more money and access uh to these um other actors uh to bring his uh, visions to life and for sure you can see their shades of it to me it's a bit of an awkward clumsy film and uh, the Kaitel isn't the best lead for a film like this in my opinion and i think that's what kind of keeps me out of it but de niro is electric oh yeah you immediately know uh from watching that movie who this guy is going to be like you can tell when you're Goodness gracious. He's remarkable in the thing. And it definitely, and and you also go, I think, no, we've never seen this voice before. Yeah, No one's ever, you know, and I go back to the stories of his dad saying, this would be a great story because you could never make a movie and Marty going, why not? You know, that's what this is. Um, um, Ellen Burstyn, who's a big star at this moment, uh, because it's after The Exorcist. Yeah chooses martin scorsese to make her next film which is alice doesn't live here anymore which i haven't watched in a long time it's really good yeah that's my memory of it yeah um and then and and uh ellen burston wins an oscar for it yeah um and then it's 1976 and taxi driver yeah i mean look at the jump dude to taxi driver that's again that's a a guy who was younger doing mean streets doing uh alice doesn't live here anymore and then, oh, I got to tell this story. And this is where 
sometimes a, a director, a creative, that project shows up at the right time when you're about to enter the height of your powers. Um, and this is the time with Taxi Driver. And he's capturing what is going on in the 70s. So very as, as great of a filmmaker he was, he was still very aware of what's going on in the world in the 1970s. And Steve, you mentioned the CBS thing. I think him working that job made him aware of what's going on in the world, politically, uh, globally, domestically, all the stuff, being aware of it, influencing him as he makes Taxi Driver very topical um, at the time in the 1970s. We've just come out of a decade where we had multiple assassinations of political figures. Uh, This is also his first collaboration with Paul Schrader. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Taxi Driver. It was actually one of our very early two-parters. But I think we had an amazing conversation. And we are definitely going to re-release our conversation about Taxi Driver. Needless to say, this is a groundbreaking film in every conceivable way. I mean, and again, you go to, look, you know, Last Picture Show and you know, Godfather and the conversation and all the things that are happening in this era of film. But Taxi Driver is so aggressively, disturbingly ambiguous, Mm. difficult, funny, odd, peculiar, unique. It is its own thing. Yeah. And one thing I'll say about it, which I know I said when we talked about it, is there was one times where I've seen it where it's been the heaviest, most serious movie I could imagine. And then there was a time where I saw it with a big audience and it was hilarious. (laughs) And both of those things are totally true about yeah. that film. Yeah. You know, um, it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, uh, which is remarkable for th- this kind of film and this filmmaker at this age. Yeah. And one other thing that we should say is those friendships that we talked about with Coppola, De Palma, Spielberg, Lucas, those are that's key to how these movies are getting made because all these guys are showing each other their films. They're competing with each yeah. other while also showing each other their films yeah well and i know that steven spielberg came in and helped him recut the ending of taxi driver mm-hmm. that final gun battle because scorsese didn't quite have it you know yeah and i just love that story uh the next film is one i haven't seen in a really long time it's 1977 new york new york with de niro and liza minnelli so let's let's talk about this because i think because i think this is a seminal moment these next two films are seminal moments in martin scorsese's life right because you have Taxi Driver, and this has been everything he's been doing has been leading to Taxi Driver. Yeah, right. The influences of his life, the uh, the studying that he's done here um, at college, the job at CBS, the relationships that he has fostered, and then boom, we get to Taxi Driver, and he captures the zeitgeist of the pop culture with politics, with the feeling of the lone gunman, which was becoming a thing. This is the '70s summer of Sam, serial killers. This is all becoming this feeling of dread and and fear that is in, encapsulating people. The idea of pornography being something people are talking openly about with midnight since Midnight Cowboy in 1969. All these things are slowly happening in the change in the pop culture. So what happens? I think, <laughs> and this is my personal opinion, I think he gets scared. Mm. I think he gets intimidated. I think he's like, how do I follow this up? How do I challenge myself? How do I try something new? Let's put De Niro in a romantic, uh, dark, not dark, but romantic. How can I say this? A failed romance with Liza Minnelli in a film here, New York, New York, that I that is an homage to my city, right? To the city right. I grew up in. And he, in my opinion, compared to other movies, he fails miserably in this movie. Now, oh, some yeah. of you out there will defend that movie because every movie has a defender, which is 
an insane thing to discover as you get older as a film lover. So some of you may love New York, New York, but it is not a good movie. Uh, I think De Niro is horribly miscast in the role that he's playing and it doesn't work. So I just wonder if he ran to something that was safe for him. And then after that, we get to the last waltz. And I think that's him going back to something he knows like Woodstock. This is a band I love. This is a thing I know. Let me lick my wounds a little bit before I'm ready to get back out there with another movie. Those are my opinions. What are your thoughts on these movies? So I'm going to give the exact opposite opinion. Please go ahead. Which is my exact opposite opinion is I don't think it's fear. I think it's arrogance. I think he comes out a taxi driver. He's doing a lot of cocaine at this point. And he goes, I can do everything. I can do, I can, I can totally, I love those old classic musicals. I can can do it. Yeah. That's what I think it is. I have no, almost no memory of this movie at all. I remember because there was that era and you went, you and I both had it, you know, Mm. college and now you're really digging into the cinephile thing. And that's when I was really, I rented a ton of Martin Scorsese movies and I rented this. And I just remember my only memory is watching it going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't understand this movie at all. Here's something I didn't know. The same year, 1977, he directs a Broadway show starring Liza Minnelli called The Act, which is a major flop. Yeah. And I knew nothing about that and sends him into a serious depression and, of course, lots more cocaine. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, The Last Waltz. I only saw The Last Waltz. It was during the pandemic, maybe mm-hmm. three years ago. Mm-hmm. That movie's amazing. Yeah, same, same, bud. Because the the, um, the documentary came out, uh, the the brothers, the Robbie Robertson one that mm-hmm. came out during the pandemic, and I got sent a screening link for it, and I watched it. And I was like, I, I I should go see. I should watch the Last Waltz. I've never watched it, and yeah, it's a fantastic movie. Absolutely great movie. Um, and and we, here's something I didn't know. So this is Robbie Robbie Robertson. This is the band, which had been Bob Dylan's backup band that became the band. And then this is when they broke up. And then after they broke up, Robert Robertson was really lost. He just didn't know what to do with himself. And he goes to Martin Scorsese and says, I'm lost. I don't know what to do with myself. And Martin Scorsese goes, well, why don't you move in with me? We can watch movies all the time. <laughs> and so Robbie Robertson moves in with Martin Scorsese. <laughs> and they sat and watched movies all the time and did a lot Amen. of cocaine. And that was, and I'm just like, that's hilarious. Yeah. I feel like he's a guy who could never be alone. You know those people who can never be alone? I feel like Scorsese is mm. one of those guys. It doesn't mean that he has to be around people like all the time, but maybe one or two people. And you don't even have to be in the same room with him. Just be in the same house. And I just have this feeling. So it would make sense. Plus, I mean, Robbie Robertson is probably, a musician is something that almost all film people revere and and uh, respect because you're, you're being a creative in a completely different medium that most film people, most creatives don't know how to do. So I'm sure beyond just watching movies, they had great conversations about music versus film composition, like music composition versus film composition. That must have been a joy to sit in the room with them and listen to. I have a question for you. We've we've kind of gotten through the first decade of uh, his film. Okay. I'm not sure. I don't know if I have an answer to it, but I'm going to ask yeah. any, anyway. Is at this point, how do you think Martin Scorsese has changed cinema? At this point? Yeah. Like at this point in his career? Yeah. This is We're before s- Raging Bull. Yes. It's a great question. I don't know that he has individually changed cinema if we're looking at his 70s movies. Now, before people light their torches, what I'm saying is that there were so many great filmmakers in the 1970s. Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, 
you could even say Hal Ashby, um, a number of great filmmakers during that time, Friedkin. So this is, he is part of a crew of people yeah. who are coming through. So collectively, they absolutely changed cinema by ripping away the veneer of like the old school stuff and the proper way of saying things or proper way of doing things and kind of almost go all the way back to Brando method and James Dean method type of acting, but through filmmaking, through direction. And so that's what you see in the 1970s. And I, so I think collectively he is part of a group of people who change the perception of cinema, who elevate cinema to uh, an art form that I don't know that it necessarily had in the forties, fifties and sixties. Again, don't light your torches. I just mean the auteur approach here was much more distinct than the classic film. So it is a sea change in the 1970s completely about what we as an audience want to see from our films um, versus what we had gotten up to that point. So first of all, quick podcasting tip if you ever don't know how to answer your own question just ask the question and then you get to listen to the other person who's really smart say a bunch of really interesting <laughs> things and that will give you the time to start to come up with your own answer this is this has been so first of all everything you did was great thank you uh, uh but secondly here's here's what my answer actually is mm. i remember when we did citizen kane yeah and we said this is one of the most influential movies of all time and yet in my opinion and i think you agreed with me when i said this is mm. there's nothing like citizen kane no, nothing. People don't, it's not like people imitated Citizen Kane after Citizen Kane. There's all sorts of ways it influenced people, but they didn't imitate it. Yeah. That's actually how I feel about Martin Scorsese up to this point is mm. I don't think anybody is, that doesn't mean that anybody's doing what he's doing. Right, right, right. Sure. I think they're being influenced by him, but I think his filmmaking is totally unique. Yeah. Um. So we're gotten to a story and I've heard multiple versions of this story and I will say multiple versions of the story. Mm. Martin Scorsese goes into the hospital. He's maybe bleeding from his mouth or having, he's really, really sick. I've also heard Martin Scorsese went into the hospital because of cocaine. Yeah. Which is way, way too much cocaine. And he was on death's door. Mm. And De Niro comes to him. And they've been talking about Raging Bull. Oh. Uh, up to this point. And, yeah. and Scorsese hadn't quite, De Niro wanted to do it. Yeah. And Scorsese was on the fence about it. And the two different ways I've heard this story one way is that he said, look, the only reason that you should make this movie is if not making it would mean that you have no reason to live. Wow. That's why you should make a movie. Because if I don't make this movie, I have no reason to live. <laughs> and Scorsese at that moment said, yes, that is how I feel about this film. That's one story. That's awesome. Okay. The other story is he came to visit him in the hospital and asked him if he wanted to live or die. Right. And if you want to live, you have to quit cocaine and we'll make this movie. Now, it could be that both, both of these stories are kind of true. Right. But whatever it is, th this is a moment in his life where he's really having a major drug problem. His career, you know, we're, we, we're after New York, New York. We're after the flop on Broadway. He's hit some real depression. Last Waltz is a great film. Yeah. Um, but like he's at a real crossroads and they decide to go all in on Raging Bull. Wow. Well, this is incredible because this is yet another moment where De Niro is involved in a drug situation. Because hmm. remember with Belushi, he had been with Belushi before the Belushi situation, before he died. Right. So 
I think Robert sensed that this was something that was dangerous for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I think he tried to get Belushi off of the cocaine himself as well. If I remember some of the stories, and please uh, correct me, guys, if, if I'm off. But I remember, that's what I remember. Him and Robin Williams, and Robin, of course, completely after the Belushi thing, reduced, if not stopped, his drug use. Um, but De Niro understood it was an issue. Um, and so having that, having someone in your life like that is an invaluable thing. Someone who understands where you're going and is, is letting you make your choices. But then you hit that wall where someone has to, that person has to come in and be like, look, if you go down this path, keep going on this path, it's done. If you don't, we can do this film if you're willing to make the change. And remember, Marty is influenced by religion. It's a very big deal for him. So the idea of admitting the sin and doing the penance mm. in order to come out of it and um, be a better person is something that may have occurred to him in those conversations with De Niro. If those allegedly, you know, allegedly happened, then you know that might have been a thing where he himself was trying to push himself as far as possible because. Creatives are most creatives are inherently self-destructive. And so once they achieve a certain level of success, and there's an imposter syndrome that goes on with a lot of creatives as well. So in those moments, it could very well be possible that Marty Scorsese, who we all revere and worship and bend the knee and all, this is still a young man in the 1970s, yeah. dealing with a lot of um feelings about himself and finding his voice and who he is and having this fame and celebrity thrust upon him. What's the reaction? Cocaine usually is a place to go and hide and feel good and you know feel like, oh, you don't have to think about the negative stuff anymore. And but it of course you crash. So yeah. you do more of it. And as you do more of it, you destroy your body more and more as you're doing it. And you keep chasing it, and then boom, terrible things can happen. Yeah. So maybe De Niro, as his friend coming in, saying to him, almost like a priest, like you've got to stop and repent, and then you can move forward again and share your gift with the world and we'll do this movie. And it's not a um, coincidence that it's a movie about a guy also confronting his uh, tendencies to self-destruct. So there's a lot here within this story that leads us to raging bull from my own personal analysis of it, which I may well, be way off, but that's well, I, I'm, I'm really curious about it and, and we're not going to go into detail about raging right. bull here because guess what? After we redo our uh, Goodfellas, we're going to do Raging Bull. And yes, so we are. Yes. I haven't watched it in a while, but knowing this stuff about this moment, I think that I think that's going to inform a lot of what we see as we explore that film, which yeah. I can't wait for because that is a lot of a movie. Yeah. Um, 1983, The King of Comedy. <sighs> and, and I'm going to say, so because I watched, so I watched Mean Streets. I watched The King of Comedy. I watched... Uh, Casino. I watched some other some other films. Yeah. Uh, I think this run, particularly going from Raging Bull to King of Comedy, Robert De Niro. It's why he's one of the great actors of all time. I don't. Yeah. How many people could play Jake LaMotta and then play Rupert Pupkin in King of Comedy back to back? I mean, that's like yeah, right. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, uh, his performances. What 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 are your feelings about the King of Comedy? I tell you what, the King of Comedy. When I first watched it, I didn't get it. Right <laughs> again, it felt like almost like oh, here we go, New York, New York, right. right after this incredible film. And so for me, I was like, ah, I don't get it. It wasn't until I was older that I went back and rewatched it and fell in love with the movie, and still am in love with the movie because 
That movie is topical for any decade. And nowadays, the idea that you have people who, God, I want to say this correctly without stepping in the minds, um, feel that they're owed attention, feel that they're owed a celebrity simply because they like another person who's famous. They feel like, oh, I can do what they do, therefore I should achieve the fame they have. I should have what they have. Why isn't it happening for me? Okay, I'm going to go and break all these, or cross all these lines and break all these laws because I have a um, belief that I deserve this, even though I haven't earned it like um, Jerry, I forget his name in the movie, Jerry Lewis's character in the movie, but like, like he has. So I'm just going to skip over a bunch of uh, steps and go and get it. And the fact that it works out for him is a very frustrating ending for me, even though it's a great ending for the movie, because he breaks so many um, uh, barriers and walls that you're not supposed to do. And I don't mean that in a respectful way. I mean, in the kind of shitty oh, way. Kidnaps a guy. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. Yes, yeah, so I'm saying. Yeah. So nowadays, you see fans of people on YouTube or, or fans of people who are or actors or creatives. And they think because they have an overwhelming love of this person, they think they can do exactly what that person does as if charm is interchangeable. The th reason certain people succeed is because they are uniquely built to succeed in a certain field because they are uniquely constructed to do so. You haven't had their upbringing. And so some people think that they deserve that as well, simply because they see someone else doing it and they think I can do it and I'll do it. And then when they don't achieve the success, they get mad, they get frustrated and they end up being very angry and leaving angry, toxic messages on, on other people's YouTubes because they're mad that they haven't achieved the success that, that other people have. And so Popkin is a, is a case study in um, ultra fandom um, that actually works out and is a dangerous um, story for the people who um, achieve a certain level of fame, that these people are always lurking out there trying to ride your coattails to success, you know? So it's funny. It sounds like you and I had a very similar experience because I actually do think that I watched King of Comedy at a very similar time to when I watched New York, New York. Right. And I had a similar sort of like I, I liked it more than New York, New York, but I was like, oh, that was a weird, uncomfortable movie. I don't know how I feel about it. I didn't really revisit it very much. And then I watched it again a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And in today's world, man, <laughs> this movie is with influencers and yeah, what I'm YouTubers saying. and all this stuff. Yeah. It's like this and just the 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 mix of reality and showbiz and right. all and sensationalism, all this stuff. And, and And it's also really scary in this weird way. Yeah. You know. Uh, and Sandra Bernhardt is like terrifying, like a terrifying psycho person and right. beautiful casting. But I also think Jerry Lewis might be some of the greatest piece of casting of all time in this movie. This movie is the breaking of the long held belief of Jerry Lewis being this goofy moron, right? Right. I know the MDA telethon did that as well to a degree because you saw Jerry's real voice. Um, but this movie, you saw the Jerry Lewis that people talk about behind the yeah. scenes, the the 
kind of dismissive, arrogant, yep. rude um, prick that a lot of people felt Jerry Lewis was behind the scenes and had experience, but also a guy who was incredibly talented because Jerry contributed so much to the world of film, which a lot of you may not know about. Do your research. There's a lot that Jerry did that changed how people make films uh, and create films and so and edit films. And so this is where we got to see this in, in this movie. And Sandra Bernhardt symbolizes the crazy fan. Oh, yeah. Rupert Pupkin, De Niro's character, is... You always correct me on this. He's the, either the psychopathic fan or the sociopathic fan. It's the fan that doesn't care who he's I get, hurt. I, it's not me correcting you because I always get confused by those two words. Okay, okay. So yeah. Someone <laughs> seems to correct me all the time about that. Um, but I keep doing research on it and I can't understand. I think they're very similar. So they're very similar. What, you know, one of them acts on it. One of them doesn't, but either way, it's a person who doesn't care about other people's feelings because all they care about is, is getting their needs. Oh, back. that's sociopathic. Sociopathic is not caring about other people's feelings. Yeah, psychopathic so maybe, is more cuckoo crazy. Right. So maybe Bernhardt <laughs> is the psychopathic. De Niro is the sociopathic because he doesn't care what anyone thinks. And he doesn't care about uh, showing up in people's houses, anything just so he achieves what he wants to achieve. Yep. So he's more ruthless than Sandra Bernhardt's character. She's just all over the place. He is very clear, which is what's dangerous about him. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's so funny. It, that movie grew on me so much more the last time I watched it. Yeah. And next, it's 1983. He makes a deal with Paramount. They greenlight his next film, which is going to be a little movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. I had no idea that there was an entire failed production of Last Temptation of Christ. Ooh, tell me. So, so uh, this is, by the way, obviously the book came from Barbara Hershey. We mentioned that before. Right. This book is by Nico Kazantzakis. And no, I really want to read this book. Uh, mm -hmm. It sounds like totally my kind of book. Yeah. Paramount wanted uh, Jesus to be played by a little actor named Robert De Niro. <laughs> De Niro says he has no interest in doing this at all. He's like, I can't, I can't see myself in robes. I can't see myself playing that kind of part. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, and, and what he's, and I love the way De Niro talks about this. He's like, the only reason you should do a movie again, it's that question he asked before of like, if I, I don't feel that I could go on living and if I didn't do this and he didn't feel this way about playing Jesus. And he goes to Scorsese, who's his buddy. And he says, it's just not one we should be together on. Yeah. But he says this, and I love this. De Niro said to Martin, to Martin Scorsese, if you really have a problem, if you need me, I'll do it. If you're yeah. up against the wall and have no other way to make it, I'll do it as a friend. friend. Right. I, I just love that. <laughs> you know? I just, I love the idea of Robert De Niro's Jesus. I want to see that movie. Hey, hey, Judas, you betrayed me a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Um, well, instead, they cast Aiden Quinn. Oh, Aiden Quinn. Oh, interesting choice. Okay. And playing Pontius Pilate, would be Sting. Oh, wow. Even after Dune, you would put him in that? Okay. And then they they have the money. He's scouting locations. They're getting their sets ready. There's budgets. There's schedules. They're about to go, and Paramount gets cold, cold feet and cans the project. And, and, and this is like, you know, this is the biggest disappointment of his career. He literally has wanted to make this movie for like 15 years. He's put everything he has into it. It's the most important film. And he is just absolutely wrecked by this. Of course. I mean, again, it's his religion, right? I mean, this is a massive thing for him to do this movie. And it's because he's coming in to his later years as a man as well. So this is the time 
when he can tell the story in his mind. But logically, how many studios are willing to risk doing a film like this that upends people's perception of the Jesus Christ story in religion? It's a massive thing to undertake for a studio. Uh, and he decides, I need to make a movie right now. Like, I just have to go make a movie. I can't, I can't wait for a lot of money. I can't wait for a big project. Everything's falling apart. Gets a script, shoestring budget, and in 1985, he goes off and makes After Hours, which I rewatched yeah. for this. I totally like it. It's a fun film. It's If nothing else, it's a fun film, for sure. Yeah. I think it, for what it is, mm-hmm. it totally works. It is bizarre and odd and has this crazy cast. And it just, it, and it seems like, you know, it's super low budget. It's all shot on location down in the East Village, I think, or somewhere somewhere like that. Yeah. And shot almost all nights, super, super fast. And it seems like they're just having a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I didn't realize after hours, he won Best Director at Cannes for. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and the next movie, again, I watched this again. This is also one of the very first Scorsese movies I ever saw, and that's The Color of Money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is probably the first Scorsese movie I saw in the theaters. Because mm. I think I saw Raging Bull, as I said. I think I saw it as a 14 or 15-year-old, and then Color of Money comes out, and I go to see it. And I thought it was a good movie, certainly, I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in the theaters, to be honest with you. I don't think I've seen it since the 80s. So I, re- I, I, yeah, I had no interest. I don't know. Yeah, tell me. You rewatched it. Yeah, I rewatched it. Uh, uh, I, I had a soft spot for it. If you can get past the ridiculousness of Tom Cruise at times in that movie, it's totally enjoyable. For me, it is the most, it is the only sort of mainstream Scorsese movie, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. where it's just like, it's just a movie it's much more of a Paul Newman movie than a Martin Scorsese movie. Right. Other than those amazing camera angles and shots of the pool and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's just, I like watching Paul Newman go through this story, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, cause he's a, he's a great actor. Yeah. It's a great actor. And, and it's revisiting something which the hustler is one that's been on our list forever. And, yeah, and, yeah. and at some point we're going to get to it. Uh, it's not as dark as the hustler, but it's, it's, t- I find it to be a total, I, I know you have movies like this, which is like, Oh, I'll just put that on. Yeah, it's one of those for sure. Well, and you're right about Tom. This is the frustrating part because obviously I am a charter member of the Tom Cruise fan club and I will take no negative uh, feedback on that. But I wish we had gotten the Tom Cruise from the late 90s in the body of the Tom Cruise for this film. Because you're right. This is, and I think that, you know, if you ever strip it away and and catch Tom at like three in the morning, when he's had a few and he's willing to talk to you honestly about something. I think this is Tom doing way too much because he was nervous to go toe to toe with a legend like Paul Newman. So instead of uh, creating a character that was somewhat believable, you went a bit cartoony and he defaulted back to that Tom Cruise thing that had been his thing in the eighties. And it's unfortunate because you're right. The film, because Master Antonio is matching Newman step by step. Oh, People yeah. need to put more respect on Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's work. That is a great fucking actress. And she was so good in that movie. Forrest Whitaker had a great cameo there as well. But like she understands what movie this is. So does Paul Newman. Tom doesn't 100% get it because he still is trying to be a superstar. And that kind of makes the film not as enjoyable for me as it should be. 
Next, and one of the interesting things about Scorsese that I really like, mm. for the most part, he follows his interests. He's not a work-for-hire director. He's not gigging it up. He's doing what he's interested in. And the next thing he does is Michael Jackson's bad, <laughs> which is beloved, yeah. you know? People love that music video. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't particularly, I mean, I'm not a huge Michael Jackson guy. Yeah. And obviously there are other reasons to not be a huge Michael Jackson guy at this point, but... But that like it, yeah. it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, this movie. And then in 1988, we are back to the last temptation of Christ. Well, don't, don't, don't brush past this. Uh, the bad video. I mean, this is Wesley Snipes Absolutely. versus Michael Jackson. This yeah. is the beginning of Wesley man. And mm. it's an interesting music and music videos in the eighties were an art form, dude, eighties oh, yeah. and nineties. Right. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. And so to see him coming in and this is, the greatest superstar in the world at the time in Michael Jackson as a, as a um, recording artist with one of the greatest directors in the world at the same time. And so coming together, it's such a weird crossing of Hollywood streams. You know what I'm saying? Like when Brando showed up in that music video near the end for Michael Jackson, rock my world. You're like, what is happening here? But there are people who know each other in Hollywood. And maybe this is a little bit of Marty getting older, starting to get older. And he's like, well, let's, let's see what I can do with this. Let's have some fun with the music video and does it, you know, cause it also done an amazing stories for Spielberg's series right. as well. One of those. So, yeah. So the one movie I really did intend to rewatch and I didn't mm. is last, last temptation of Christ. Oh, I really wish I had, I haven't seen it in a really long time. Obviously we have, Willem Dafoe and uh, David Bowie replacing Aiden Quinn and Sting, yeah, which I think is an improvement on both. <laughs> um, I remember really liking this film. And what, the reason I really wanted to rewatch it, and I'm kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't, is that I know a lot more. I, I, I've read more about religion and about Jesus. And I think the movie would be more profound to me this time, yeah. no, knowing a lot more about it than I did before. But what's, you, what's your reaction to this film? Uh, well, first of all, are we adding this to, are we doing an episode on Last Temptation of Christ or no? We haven't discussed doing it. I mean, <laughs> if there's an open slot. Well, I mean, so, and this is, we'll just have this, this is a live cinephiles discussion right now. So I, the plan was Goodfellas and Raging Bull. Yes. Do you want to do Goodfellas, Raging Bull, and Last Temptation of Christ? Because then we're doing Scorsese until June. <laughs> well, I need to know that you can handle it because I know Coppola, and I don't mean that in a negative way, because I saw what Coppola did to you. I saw <laughs> what the Godfather did to Steve Morris, and it was not pretty by the end because he was coppola out, which I have never achieved in my life. So the fact that that could be happening to you as someone who loves that those films uh, scares me. So, uh, yeah, I would absolutely love to do these three back-to-back. Um, or save uh, Last Temptation for later on down the road for like um, during us during um, the fall when all these award winning films are or, uh, you know, awards worthy contender films come out could be where people are in the mood, you know, for Last Temptation of Christ, as opposed to us doing it in the spring when people are maybe a little bit happier about them. Although it is a classic Easter film. I mean oh, good point. You know what? All right, fine. We're in. We're doing it. Fuck it. We're doing <laughs> okay. It. Easter. Uh, oh, sorry, God. Uh, but yeah, look, <laughs> Last Temptation of Christ is a film that I resisted for a very long time uh, because of my own religion things. And I was not 
quite 100% ready to watch the movie when it first came out. Um, I remember it being a big drama when it came out and the protests and all of that. So I waited until a little bit later in the 90s to watch it on uh, VHS. And it was an experience for sure to watch this movie. Um, and what I went through watching the movie and right at a time where I'm in my 20s questioning my own beliefs about religion and about things, having battles with my father about his perception of religion versus mine, taking courses in college that talk about how the Bible has been rewritten multiple times, depending on which version you read and the historical approaches to it. So it was at a, it was at a perfect time when I finally watched it to be more receptive to the controversial, quote unquote, ideas in the movie and the way things are laid out in the film. But I think it's a bold film and and um, that does not pull any punches in exploring uh, the story of Jesus from this angle. Well, I, I, I'm kind of excited about this, mm. actually, because I will read the book. Mm. I'll probably reread. I think it was Jesus, a biography was the, the very scholarly book I read on the life of Jesus. It's mm. by a, a Jesuit priest. And, and, and just the thing that I remember from it was just the exploration of the idea of what it means for God to take human form to experience what it is to be human. And I think that is perfectly in line with the, with the last temptation of Christ. Yeah. And I, you know, look, you, you, you say that you saw me get exhausted at the end of Coppola. I was also exhausted at the end of JFK, (laughs) you know, and I, I'm sure I'll be exhausted after Raging Bull and I'll be exhausted after last temptation of Christ, but that's That's awesome because okay. I, because those are the times where we really do what I don't think anybody other than the cinephiles does. Yeah. You know, nobody, nobody's going to break down a movie like we're going to do it. And so that's really exciting. And I just don't want to be into, you know, going to a hospital room and saying to you, do you really want to do this? Uh, you know, Cause you've broken down from exhaustion. <laughs> we're only going to do this if you really want to do this. Well, for A, that got him out of the hospital room. That's true. That's true. B, I don't do cocaine because <laughs> I don't think – I think cocaine would be a bad drug for me. I think <laughs> I would like it too much. Uh, I don't do that. And C, yeah. the result of that leaving that hospital room was Raging Bull. Right, true. Good point. You know? The result may be one of our greatest episodes ever. Good it point. It might be. It might be. Uh, John, New York stories. Uh, what do you want me to say? <laughs> I, I totally, I actually totally disagree. I think Go ahead. <laughs> the Coppola movie is terrible. Yes. It's, horrific. It's a train wreck. It is so much a waste of space. The Woody Allen movie, he's funny and it's kind of funny. Mm. I think Nick Nolte and I think it's Rebecca De Mornay in yeah. that film, Life Lessons. I think that's an amazing short film. Okay. I really like it. Yeah. All right. You're not a fan. I'm not a fan of that entire project. Yeah. And I th- I thought it was... So uneven and just not for me. And uh, I've never watched the film again. Like I just never, never watched that whole sequence of films ever again. Cause it just kind of, it tarnished Woody a little bit for me. It really showed me that Coppola is done. And although Marty's might've been better, it was only, it might've only been better in comparison to the other ones. So I couldn't properly gauge it when I watched it. So, yeah. But I mean, if we wanted to watch it and do a short on it, I guess we could do that, but I'm not jumping to do your, that. your enthusiasm is is really <laughs> making me want to do that <laughs> enthusiasms enthusiasms uh <laughs> 1990 goodfellas yeah man can't wait can't wait to jump back into it yeah we're we're not gonna dive too deep into because we're gonna do a whole episode on it but episodes episodes sorry let's, yes. be, let's be honest <laughs> for yes episodes 
but absolutely they're a seminal movie. And this is where you can ask the question again. All right. What is how, what do you feel has been Scorsese's influence on cinema now? Now we are talking about a director who is not only um, at the height of his powers with multiple examples of what an incredible director he is, but this is a man now commentating on a human on the human journey and commentating on what can happen to you and the changes uh, and also making it personal, right? Like Goodfellas, there's a lot of Martin Scorsese's own life that comes through in this movie. And it's right after Last Temptation, which is his reckoning with religion. So I think both of these films are companion films in discovering who Martin Scorsese is as a person. Now, in terms of filmmaking, this is where he takes even what was already done in Godfather and elevates it. It is a 70s film debuting in the 1990s. It's incredible. And so now we have a guy who is able to tell us not only a personal story, but also show us his um, perspective on the world and bring all of his incredible talent to bear as a filmmaker and inspire a lot of people to take up a camera, to um, shoot uh, close-ups in a certain way, to use slow motion in a certain way, to use uh, moments of pausing in a certain way, to use voiceover in a certain way, uh, and, and to showcase twists and turns in ways that really unsettle you. And then we get to Cape fucking Fear, which I think is another masterpiece, in my opinion, of his abilities to scare the living shit out of you, man. He is now at this point a mature master filmmaker. Yeah, I, 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 I hesitate to say like, oh, here he hit his stride because that's ridiculous to say when he's already made Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and a bunch of other great films. Yeah. But there's some, there's a kind of confidence, I think, with Goodfellas that's sort of, I got it. I like, and it's also the culmination yeah. of these themes that he dealt with in Mean Streets, that he yeah. dealt with in Taxi Driver, obviously in Last Temptation of Christ, of honor and violence and moral codes and moral ambiguity next to moral codes yeah. and and having us have fun doing terrible things yeah. you know like and that's why i say it's like that screening of taxi driver where everyone's laughing goodfellas is a really funny movie you know it yeah. is genuinely fun even some of the brutality is genuinely fun yeah. and it's brutal and i go back to that he really liked the gangsters that lived in his neighborhood. They took good care of him, and he realized they were monsters. Yeah, we don't have the Sopranos without Goodfellas. Oh, of course not. Absolutely right? not. And, and we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Sopranos this year. We don't have any of that without uh, Goodfellas. You know, and I think Goodfellas influenced a number of filmmakers to get into film. You know, that we see now. I think Goodfellas is way more influential on the Sopranos than The Godfather is. Oh yeah, hundred percent. They may quote the Godfather. Oh, they love the Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's 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 I it's funny thinking about you know this question of him being influential. Yeah, I wonder about re there's no Reservoir Dogs without Goodfellas. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I think that I th and I I I know that Tarantino obviously loves Scorsese, but like the humor and the violence and the speed and the way the camera is moving and all that stuff. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of Tarantino in Goodfellas. It's an independent film masquerading as a studio release. Yeah. 100%. You know? Uh, and so, uh, you mentioned it already, Cape Fear. 
I, I love this movie. I love this movie. This is, again, he is now a man. He is a man making movies, right? And I say that in the way of like, he is a fully realized, mature human being who is now embracing his love of these movies that influenced him as a kid. Redoing Cape Fear, you know, this is Robert Mitchum. This is Gregory Peck. These are legends. Right. He is going to take this film on and give his own point of view on it. And it's a story that still resonates there in the 1990s. The idea, because some people may forget this, but in the 90s, we were absolutely battling all the time about what to do with prisons, what to do with prisoners, what to do with rehabilitation. This was a very big deal in the 1990s. I mean, a lot of people go back to that crime bill that Joe Biden was a part, President Joe Biden was a part of. They talk about stuff that was going on there and this idea of do we have rehabil- what happens when someone claims to be rehabilitated and how many times have we heard these stories of people who get come out of prison and you know just go right back to their life of crime and hurt people. And so there was a lot of that pulsating through this. But Marty also shows us the destruction, the possible destruction of a marriage. And I don't know if this is reflective of what he might have been going through at the time for his own in his own situation. And also, this is De Niro, him creating yet another iconic character for De Niro to play, a villain that I would put up in the top pantheon of villains, oh. Max Katie, ever, 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 any, any villain ever on film. And that scene alone with Juliette Lewis, which is super uncomfortable, but also something we were becoming more aware of, which was teachers having inappropriate relationships with their ch- with young students. Of course, it's way bigger now because we see that a lot of the female teachers are having these relationships with male students. But the but certainly it was happening all the time in certain places that male teachers were in having inappropriate relationships with young teenage girls, you know. And so there was a lot of this pulsating throughout. And it's a challenging film because no one, aside from maybe Juliette Lewis, is someone that is um, a good person in the movie. You know, Jessica Lange does some stuff that's questionable. Nolte certainly Nolte, was how he handled the stuff with Max Cady. And of course, Max Cady. So this is where you have a, an interesting challenge as a viewer as you're watching this. And I think the film and what he does and having him spit tongues out and talk in tongues as he's dying in the water, just the last shot of his eyes above the water before he goes under. It's just incredible. Plus the score, which was very Bernard Herrmann-esque, oh, yeah. in it, which was I thought just was genius. So, yeah, I mean, people don't talk about it in the same breath as Goodfellas, but I think Cape Fear absolutely belongs in the same conversation with Goodfellas. So I haven't seen it a ton, and it's one I didn't rewatch, and now I'm kind of wishing that I have. But one <laughs> of the big things I remember, and this is, again, it's just a Scorsese thing of like, I'm going to go into the uncomfortable space and I'm not going to let you feel comfortable. Yes. You know, this is confident filmmaker. I well, know like, you're going to be pissed off, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, and you go to Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, you, you know, all right. of the stuff in King of Comedy is lots of stuff is really uncomfortable. Yeah. And and certainly all the Juliette Lewis stuff like the, it isn't because she's intrigued by him. Right. She's drawn to him. That's 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 what makes it. It. it, it if she was repulsed by him, he would just be a bad guy and we could sit back. Right. But because she's intrigued by him, we're like, oh, God, uh, you know, it's really, really upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Next, he goes off to Japan to play Vincent van Gogh in, Mar- in Kira Kurosawa's Dreams. Which, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I don't either, buddy. I don't either. But, but you know, I, if, yeah. if he had called me and said, Steve, I want you to come be in my Kurosawa movie, or if Martin Scorsese calls me today and says, Steve, I want you to come play, you know, Abe Lincoln a in something, I would be like, that doesn't make sense to me, but okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously we spoke about it in the Kurosawa um, a series we had, but there's a very strong connection between Scorsese and Coppola yeah. uh, and Lucas to Kurosawa. I'm not sure if Spielberg's connection, but those, certainly those three are very strong connections. Uh, and so, you know, you're going to turn down one of your heroes asking you to come play, play an iconic painter uh, in your movie? Uh, no. I mean, Dreams is a bit of an uneven yeah. Kurosawa entry, I would argue, but it was interesting to see Marty play the character. I just, you know, it's not a great Exactly. Also, well, you know, we've said that he follows his whims. He yes, goes yes. to make do what he wants to make, yeah. and the next thing he wanted to make is not my favorite Scorsese movie, but that's The Age of Innocence. Yeah. What's what's your feelings on it? I mean, I know people like this movie. I know it's reviewed well. I just found it to be very boring, yeah. and I was surprised. Uh, you know, and this is the thing about Marty, man. Marty is interesting because, like, I know him. Mar- Mr. Scorsese is interesting because, like. <laughs> I know we had a fan of ours get upset that we weren't, you know, telling them, calling them by their Mr. Names and Mrs. Names. But like, um, this is an unusual thing. And I don't think it's New York, New York bad, but I certainly think it's a little boring. And I don't know if Scorsese was the right person to direct this film, but you know, we wanted to try it out. Uh, it speaks volumes that he's never kind of gone back to a film like this ever again. So um, I, th- I thought it was very well directed. And I didn't feel a damn thing when I was watching it. Yeah, that's how I, I don't think it's bad. Yeah. I, 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 all the actors are good. It looks beautiful. I, yeah, I, I have since read the book. Yeah. Um, and I didn't love the book either. So, it's, you know, <laughs> uh, but our next film is one that I know that you love and that's Casino. Yeah. Uh, but again, Casino is one of these films that like, I did not like when I saw it the first time. I was not a fan of Sharon Stone. I've never been the biggest fan of Sharon Stone for my own personal reasons. Uh, for you know, just some actors or actresses just don't strike you, just don't hit you right, right? And she's never fully a hundred percent hit me right, um, because she's been very much about herself for a very long time, and I don't always like that amongst actors, regardless of gender. And so I wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of it, but I have grown. My estimation of this film has grown by leaps and bounds. I've grown to appreciate Sharon Stone's performance in the movie very strongly, but. De Niro and Pesci. I love their chemistry in the film. Um, I thought that ending with Pesci and his brother, fuck, man. They, uh, I, yeah. There are very rare moments in film where I'm sitting in the movie theater and I'm, I can't even cry, but I feel this overwhelming sense of just heartbroken sadness, even though this is one of the worst people on the planet. Terrible, yeah. To make him watch as you beat his brother to death or within an inch of his life because you buried him alive is just so fucking horrible. But I thought this film was uh, great in how Marty directed it, the cinematography here, the way he progressed the stories and didn't make De Niro like this badass uh, you know, guy like you saw in Goodfellas. This is Ace, Roth, Ace Rothstein. He has like a different approach to the whole mob situation. And Pesci is the one that's even scarier than he was in Goodfellas. And I like the way the film uh, goes down. So now it's one of my favorites to put on uh, whenever, like you said, put on whenever 
yeah. um, uh, I'm just doing stuff, you know? Well, I, it, it's so funny because I think obviously there's a very strong connection to Goodfellas. Yeah. I didn't love it when I first saw it either. I saw it in the theater and went, oh. Okay, it seems kind of good fellas, but not as good. That's kind of how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. And and what's interesting to me about it, first of all, it's not as fun as Goodfellas. No. Oh, like no. Goodfellas with the whole opening montage, all my life I wanted to be a gangster, you're just like enjoying it. You're eating it up. And it's all but then I, I this is when I rewatched because I knew how much you loved it. So I wanted to rewatch it before we talked about it. Mm. I liked it much, much more. I think it t- you got to settle into it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And I think, again, I mean, obviously, I've already said De Niro is one of the great actors of all time. Mm. Pesci is also an ama- uh, unbelievably amazing actor. Mm-hmm. And I think what what I think you get fooled into thinking, oh, I'm going to watch De Niro and Pesci play gangsters. Yeah. And so you assume they're going to be the same. And their characters are nothing like the characters they play in Goodfellas or other films. Yep. They're completely their own thing. A, Pesci, super scary and crazy in a totally different way. Yeah. And De Niro is brilliant and an idiot in a different way. Like mm-hmm. the choices that he makes and the thing and the thing about Sharon Stone, you're not supposed to like her. Right. No, <laughs> I know. You're not. Right. You know, like that, that is, she is succeeding in doing her job. Yeah. I don't find it. It's not a movie I would go back to and watch all the time because I, but it also, it's all there. All yeah. of all of Scorsese's skill, and and this is the big thing that really hit me as I've watched a lot of his films over the last several weeks, and also you know Killers of the Flower Moon is in theaters. I saw mm. that in theater. Man, this guy knows how to make a movie, dude. You know, hundred percent. Whether the end result is great or not, you never doubt his abilities as a filmmaker. You just yeah. and you're always even in the bad films, you can find stuff in the films, or how can I say this? Not maybe not bad films, but films that aren't as good as his other ones. You can find really great scenes, incredibly well shot moments, um, and phenomenal performances, even if the film itself doesn't one hundred percent work. And that speaks to the kind of director that he is. You know, even his misses have hits within them. You know, um, it, there's always a choice. This is and this is the hard thing, and it was always hard when I taught my students. It was like, yes, you could put the camera here at eye level on sticks, a tripod, and film your scene. And you would have filmed your scene. But you have not directed yet. You need to make a choice. You need to to see the scene in a certain way and film it a certain way, block it a certain way, work with actors a certain way, have the music hit a certain way, have the cuts happen a certain way. And when you're watching a Scorsese film, there's always a choice. There's always a vision happening, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the big thing. And, and, And also man, the guy knows how to work with actors. Yep. You know, it's like, obviously a, he's the kind of director that actors want to come back and work with over and over again. And he's the kind of director where I, Joe Pesci is a great actor. Has Joe Pesci, is he ever as good as he is in a Scorsese movie? uh, Not in these kinds of roles. No. I mean, I mean like the, the, it's just the things that he does. And it's funny. There's a story that came up. This was from King of comedy that I wanted to mention. This came from Paul Zimmerman, who is the screenwriter. Yeah. And they're struggling with the ending of King and Comedy and kind of going back and forth. And Jerry Lewis says he has an idea on how to end the film. And so Paul Zimmerman and Scorsese go in and have a meeting with Jerry Lewis and Jerry starts talking. And immediately Paul Zimmerman starts shaking his head. No. And Marty, it sounds like if my understanding of the story is he interrupted the meeting and turned to Zimmerman and said, never shake your head. No, to someone. And he, what he said was, when you, you're, as soon as you shake your head no, you are shutting down this other person's creative process. Yeah. You could always say no later. 
he always says yes to actors. He never tells actors that wasn't good. Right. He says that he says that was great. Let's do another one. He always wants to get the best work out of actors by positively reinforcing people. That's and with every and that's how I think. That is exactly my philosophy. And it's so important. I just love that. Never shake your head. Hmm. You could think that inside, and yeah. you could know you're never ever gonna make that choice. Yeah. But they could say something that could surprise you. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um there's a bunch of films that Scorsese made, uh, which are him talking about film. And the first one is 1995, A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese Through American Film. If you are cinephiles, and I think you are because you're listening to our ridiculous show, <laughs> you need to watch these movies. These movies are for you. Yeah. They are fantastic. There's a new one out right now on AMC+. Plus. Mm. new series out right now. If you guys aren't watching it, you need to. You know, these... Great documentaries on film. We don't get them a lot, but when we do get them, you all have to watch them. You know, they're so fun to uh, go back and revisit some of these influences and some of these great approaches to film. And he has this one. He has My Voyage to Italy, which is all about Italian films. These are just great, great explorations of movies with a great teacher, you know, yeah. explaining all this stuff to you. 1997 is Kundun. I first saw Kundun uh, working in that DVD job. And I know I've said this before. There are some movies that I did the DVD on that I watched over and over again. And every time I watched them, they got worse. <laughs> the rock was one of these. How dare you. Um, and there are some movies that every time I watched them, they got better. And Rushmore was certainly one of those. Oh. Big Lebowski was one of those. Kundun is one of those. Hmm. I, the more I watched it, the more I was like, this is a really good movie. Hmm. Uh, have you seen it? What's your feelings on it? Yeah, no, I saw it. And again, it's one of these films that is incredibly well directed, and yet it did nothing for me. Mm. So yeah, there are just certain Scorsese films, and we're about to enter into a run of a few of them. To be honest yeah. with you, yeah. Um, bringing out the dead being the next one—that's one that doesn't do it for me. It's it, it's kind of everyone's like, "Hey, he's back to his mean streets." You know, Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader wrote it. It's okay. It's yeah, it's fine. It's all too much in certain moments. And you're just like, okay, you know, if you're into this kind of overdone approach to things, fine. Uh, it's your, it's your, it's your prerogative, but I, I don't feel anything when I watch that movie. I, I have not rewatched his next film gangs of New York in a long time. Not my favorite either. Yeah, no, I don't like gangs at all. I know some people may now you can light your torches if you want, but nothing beyond the first opening scene works for me in any way, shape or form. I think DiCaprio, this is too early in his career to play this character. He is not the great actor we know him to be now when he's making this movie. Daniel Day-Lewis is a goddamn dynamo in this movie. He is oh, the yeah. only reason to watch this movie. Cameron Diaz is horribly miscast, as she usually is in any dramas. And uh, I just think the film falls apart on so many. And you have a great collection of John C. Riley, Brendan Gleeson, there's a great yeah. collection of actors that are a part of this. But it's so disjointed and weird, it does nothing for me, and I don't know why people love the movie. The opening sequence of Liam Neeson, that's awesome. And then once he's dead, the rest of the movie dies for me, really, except for Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, because I love going back and watching, again, as I said, even within his misses, my, my belief of his misses, he has hits. That scene with Daniel Day-Lewis talking to Leonardo DiCaprio when he wakes up and, D and DiCaprio is scared that he knows who he is when he doesn't, 
And he's talking about his father, DiCaprio's father, without knowing that that is DiCaprio's father, is an awesome, awesome scene. And Daniel Day-Lewis just kills that monologue. So, yeah. I I just didn't understand the movie. I, I really, you know, like I just didn't under, and it was sort of like this sort of like, well, why is this story? Yeah. Because I know a bit about the era. Sure. And it just sure. seemed like, like, I didn't understand like what, why this was the story that you wanted to tell. Yeah. It didn't. And, and it's funny. I'll, and I'll just say what my bias was too. At the time, at the time I saw Leonardo DiCaprio as a kid, child actor who had a big hit in Titanic and it was good and charismatic, but I was like, why are you working with this guy? You know what I mean? Like, I just didn't, I didn't see it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't understand how great an actor he was sure. going to become. Sure. Um, but it did, he, you know, Scorsese says, and we talked about this in Wolf of Wall Street, mm. that discovering Leonardo DiCaprio revitalized his love of making films. Hey, man. Like you, you know? said, he follows his gut. Yeah. He follows his muse where he goes. And yeah, no surprise. I agree. I mean, he found a younger actor that he can start over with, just like he did with De Niro at the beginning, yeah. um, that offered different approaches to certain films that De Niro wouldn't have been able to give to him. And so, yeah. So you see it here in Gangs of New York. Um, as well. And his next film, again, with DiCaprio, is The Aviator, which mm. I liked when I saw it in the theater. And then I rewatched it a few weeks ago and liked it much more. I was actually much more impressed with The Aviator than I had been the first time I saw it. This is DiCaprio just about yeah. across that line, right? This is DiCaprio. It's like Cruz. Just when he does um, Born on the Fourth of July, it's too early. But right. you're seeing the beginnings of what will be a great actor. I think the same, you know, he is a great, I don't care what anybody says, Tom is a good, great actor. And with DiCaprio, this is just before he becomes a great actor and you see shades of it throughout this movie. Um, and, I, and I do, and I like this movie. And it's one of these films that, that you know, tackled the idea of what, um, uh, what that condition is like to have. Uh, you know, I'd never seen it quite that way on film. And I like that he, uh, Marty pulled no punches in showing it. Well, and DiCaprio is willing to go for it like that. The yes. courage, that's where you see the courage yep. starting of like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this all the way, you know, and Kate Blanchett is great. And there's a whole bunch of great performances in it. And the, the way he captures the era is really, really amazing in that, too. He, he also, you know, again, he's following his interests and he makes a bunch of documentaries. I just thought I'd bring them all up here. Sure. Uh, in 2005, he makes No Direction Home, which is a fantastic documentary on Bob Dylan. Mm. There's also uh, Living in the Material World, George Harrison, yes. another great documentary. I have not seen the Fran Lebowitz documentary, but I hear it's fantastic. And the one I knew nothing about, but I'm definitely going to watch, is The 50-Year Argument, which is a documentary about the New York Review of Books. And I'm like, Ooh. all right, that's like made for – Martin Scorsese wants to do a documentary about the New York Review of Books? I'm in. So what do you think about some of his documentaries? Uh, Sp uh, Spirits in the Material World, the, the George Harrison one, is great. I've watched that one maybe five or six times. It's two parts. It's four hours. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't think I've seen a documentary about any of the Beatles that comes close to what that I agree. documentary is. And you could argue there's a lot to talk about Lennon, a lot to talk about McCarthy, but there was just something different about Harrison, the spiritual nature of Harrison that I think was f uh, just incredible to explore, uh, and which is, I think, on Max, if you guys want to watch mm. it on Max. Um, what was the first one you mentioned? Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. Um, the no Direction Home is great. That's, I think it's a criterion as well. That is a – I mean, as someone who has come – who has had an interesting relationship with Bob Dylan, 
that documentary was a nice kind of way to maybe contextualize some of my feelings about Dylan and thoughts on Dylan. Cause you know, I don't think I'm smart enough to really appreciate the lyricism of Dylan. And I don't go, let me put on my favorite Dylan songs that never happens. But when I, but I do have like a shit ton of Dylan songs on my iPhone or iTunes rather that I can listen to when they pop on. And I always like and appreciate and respect Dylan, but I don't worship Dylan like other people do. Watching that movie made me understand yeah. why people do. You know? Pretty much the same for me. I, 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 uh, obviously I know the big songs and, mm. and admire them and, and I understand his importance, mm. but I never went down the Dylan rabbit hole. I just never, yeah. you know, got all the albums and listened to them over and over again. And I'm sure if I did, I would have that experience, but I yeah. haven't done it. Yeah. Um, 2006 is the departed. Yeah. It's a great movie. And he fi- and this is where he finally gets the recognition from the Academy. And it, you know, again, issues of violence loyalty you know rules within particular societies great ensemble of actors it's a really great movie yeah i like this movie a lot uh and i know people make fun of it because you know the rat crawling across and yeah fine it went a little too far if you're gonna defend me defend bringing out the dead and you're gonna have an issue with the rat we need to have a conversation about your idea of overdone things um so it is obviously a, a remake of infernal affairs which is the i think the korean uh, series of films there. Um, but I loved it as a guy who loves Boston movies. Mm-hmm. This is a fucking great Boston movie. And I know Nicholson's accent, Nicholson's performance. It's cartoonish. It's crazy. Again, if you like bringing out the dead and you have an issue with Nicholson's performance, take a look at yourself in the mirror. And, but it is absolutely Matt Damon, one of the best performances of Matt Damon's career, the twists and the turns of the film for someone who hadn't seen the, uh, infernal affairs, a trilogy of films, were all shocking to me. Martin Sheen, who every once in a while pops up in these feature films with directors that know how to use him, is such a uh, character that you fall in love with so that what happens to him happens to him. It devastates you. Um, The brutal nature with which he showcases some of the situations that are happening in that movie are great. And uh, and DiCaprio, this is when DiCaprio's finally crossed that line into greatness. And you're just like, this is fucking awesome. You know, and so, and a Vera Farmiga, who I think is great in their electric uh, story or romance, if you want to call it that, um, that comes through throughout the movie. And Baldwin and Wahlberg are all They're great. all great. Yeah. Yeah. Just great. It, it's an eminently rewatchable movie. You can rewatch that a hundred times and enjoy it, man. It, it's funny. We were talking about, you know, Color of Money being his most mainstream. Mm. This one is too in a different, different way. I mean, it's still very much in the Scorsese world yeah but it also is a i mean obviously it was a hugely popular film and won all sorts of awards yeah it, it's just and, and you know what else is about it i would say yeah. maybe that makes it a little more mainstream it's all movie stars you know yes right right yeah and, and i think what you're saying is absolutely correct steve and as, as you're saying it occurred to me as well it is one of the most accessible masterpieces of his career it's an accessible masterpiece right and Whereas other films can be more accessible because they're fun films like After Hours or whatever. This is an accessible one where you can watch and like truly appreciate it, whether you're a cinephile or not, truly appreciate and enjoy the film. Yeah, as opposed to if you go, okay, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ, and Goodfellas, with every one of those, while they're great films, there are people you wouldn't recommend it to. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, you wouldn't, you know, like my sister would not like Taxi Driver. I mean, maybe she's seen it, maybe she hasn't, but like, that's not a film for her. 
you know, like there, there are people, obviously lots of people, religious people, last temptation of Christ, maybe is not where you want to go. Right. Right. But with the, the, I wouldn't say that for the departed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had never seen Shutter Island, so I watched it for this. I think that you're not a huge fan of it. I, I it, 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 it felt very much into the category of this movie is beautifully made top to bottom. Yeah. DiCaprio is acting the shit out of it. I didn't love it, but I also, but I appreciate it. I'd say that's where I'd kind of put it for me. You have to buy into the concept. You have mm. to buy into the idea that he's, I, the problem is I figured it out within the first 20 minutes. Right. And then I was like, oh, the fucking, oh, oh. and it sucks. Cause when you film, we figure out a film early, you're like, oh man. So now it's the job of the film to still keep you in that state right. of suspended disbelief or belief, whatever it is. And so you, so that when the thing comes at the end, you can appreciate it. And still be caught up in it, be like, oh, it's awesome. But for me, it didn't. I knew what she was. I knew it was all a fantasy. I knew he was part of the thing. And I was like, oh, this is like St. Elsewhere. Oh, it's a fucking dream. It's a fucking uh, right. snow globe. Oh, you know, so yeah, it just for me, it just didn't work overall. But you're absolutely right. It's incredibly well directed. Certainly, it's very well reviewed. A lot of people like the movie. So I'm not in any way denigrating anybody who likes the movie who's listening to us. It's just for me, it's not my, it's not my cup of tea. I, I'm I'm just marveling at this moment at this career. I really am. Yeah. Like, you know, there's just so much to talk. You know, we've spent a few minutes on each of these movies, all of, almost many of which could be a cinephiles episode sure. or episodes. There's so much here, and these even you know starts to go into television because 2010 is Boardwalk Empire, right? Um, which is a a really great series, um, and obviously you know is I I just love that he's following his interest. Yeah. And then there is a movie that I have never seen, which is ridiculous because I have a kid and should have seen it, but I have never seen Hugo. Oh, really? Yeah, never oh, seen it. Oh, yeah. That's a, I think that's a very sweet film uh, with some nice performances from Aza Butterfield and uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, and um, uh, Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley. I'm sorry, Sir Ben Kingsley. He's uh, very, he's pissed at you. Yeah, he, I've heard he does get mad. If you I, don't I've heard that too, actually. Um, but it's a great homage to Scorsese's love of film, right? The Millet stuff is all through it here. And, and there's magic and wonder. It's not a film that you're going to go into and be like, oh, wow, this is good as Goodfellas or whatever. No, it's just, you know, an older filmmaker doing a nice, sweet film about his love of old films that have laid the groundwork for cinema, right? We wouldn't have cinema without Meillet, without some of these people. And so it's his way of saying thank you. And so that's the context with it. I watched that film and uh, I like it, you know? The next film is one that we discussed in depth, which is The Wolf of Wall Street. I think I, I think our feelings about it are pretty well documented. Yes, you can go back and listen to our episode if you want to hear our thoughts on that film for sure. We certainly had a lot of them. A movie I have no thoughts on because I have never seen is Silence. Yeah, I saw Silence. <laughs> that was a, that was a, there was a long silence after you said that. I think Silence is a film that I'm going to have to revisit later in life because I just did not like it. Why? It's one of these films I had a civil war with within myself as I was watching it. And this is a window into the John Roca mind sometimes i am watching this film and the whole time i'm watching this film i'm saying to myself i know this is an incredibly well-directed film this is a phenomenally well-acted film i can tell and this should be speaking my language because it's also a commentary on religion but it is laborious 
in a lot of ways and in a lot of sequences. And I just was like, after a while, I just felt like pounding my head through the wall. And then it ends so in such a disappointing way that it just did not work for me. And I know there are defenders of silence, but for me, it's an exhausting film. And um, yeah, it just full of great performances, full of very well shot sequences that does absolutely nothing but me, for me, but exhaust me at the end. You know, I think there, there are many signs of a great filmmaker, but I just thought of one as you were speaking. Mm. You know what one sign of a great filmmaker is? Mm. You actually will plan on going back to a film you didn't like. Oh, yeah. Because you know this is a great filmmaker. Because I want to give him more chances to, to I want to give him more chances for me to like his film. Because yeah. I respect him and admire him and love him as a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, and listen to what we've, how many times we've said it. King of Comedy transformed for yeah. both of us watching it later in our lives. Yeah. We said it, I said, I think we both said it about Casino. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like there's multiple films in here that we went, you know, I came back to them and like, oh, this is different from what I thought. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where a great filmmaker is. And sometimes, and, and, and so now I'm curious too, at some point I will watch it and maybe at some point I will watch it again. Um, one movie that I heard you talking about a ton and I didn't see for a while, probably a, at least a year or two after you had seen it. And you raved about it, and I was resisting it. And that is The Irishman. Yeah. And when I watched it, I'm like, fuck, this, because I kind of, I think in my brain, I was like, okay, Scorsese, we're on the downhill slope of his career. You know, De Niro's old, Pacino's older. You know, Pacino has, irritates me with his Pacino-ness at certain points. De Niro's done a whole bunch of kind of random stuff that's okay. Yeah. Dirty but, Grandpa. You know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you go like, what do they really have? And then these guys come in and like, holy shit, it's a really fucking good movie. It is so good, man. And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, three hours. I sat in that theater. I saw it with Shannon. I was, you know, Shannon came with me to the the screening of it in L.A. And I remember, like, like we went to have a couple of beers, but then we made sure we pissed before we went to the theater. Right. We sat in the t almost the top row of the section of the theater that we went to see it in. And neither one of us left the theater to go past and you know Sh shannon leaves the theater 20 minutes in an hour I wasn't in. gonna say anything but yeah no he, <laughs> look, he, he doesn't mind i'm gonna out him you know mr geek buddy shannon mcclung but neither one of us left the theater throughout the entire movie i didn't even know i had to pee until the movie was over because i was so engrossed in it and i will defend i will die on the hill like john snow in the in the battle of the bastards defending that movie i have watched the movie multiple multiple times it is one of the most engrossing films for me that i've ever seen that is an epic and uh, we said way earlier in the in the conversation here that scorsese and this has been documented that he has a, an incredible love of epics he had never directed an epic epic movie you could argue last temptation you could argue a couple of these other movies they're possibly epic this is an epic this is a gangster epic movie, which is a rarity in gangster films. I think Once Upon a Time in America is another one, the Sergio Leone film. Mm. They, they, there are rare moments where you get epic gangster movies. This is an epic movie full of incredible performances. You're right about Pacino. He reigns Pacino in, yep. lets it work in certain moments, reigns him in other moments. De Niro has never been better than he was in this movie. Um, Stephen Graham is great as this foil for Pacino throughout the film. What happens with De Niro and his children, you feel all of it. There's the brutality of Goodfellas. 
There's the um, epicness and the long form storytelling that we've seen him do in Last Temptation of Christ. All of his skills come to bear. This is in the top five for me of Scorsese films, and no one is ever going to talk me out of it. It is so good, so well written, such a fantastic journey. And the, again, his slow motion skills is works perfectly. The way he brings out the best in Ray Romano. I mean, that is a that was a revelation yeah. for me to see. He was that. great. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to rave on and on about it. It's just such a good movie that I'm very happy that he was able to do you know, as an older filmmaker. And I think he's, he brought all of his skills that he's learned for decades to bear in this movie and not enough people give it the respect it deserves. What's remarkable, you know, as we said, uh, or I said when we were talking about Casino of like, okay, Pesci and De Niro, they're both playing gangsters. And I just picture they're going to play the same characters. And of course those characters are totally different. Yeah. Even more so in the Irishman, the Irishman, because now we have Pacino, Pesci and De Niro, yeah. three of the great gangster actors of all time, right? you know, mm-hmm. coming in and Pacino's character is nothing like Michael Corleone. <laughs> Pesci's character is nothing like who he plays in Casino or in Goodfellas. Pesci's character is like the the relaxedness of his character, the the confidence, the ease of his character in this way. And then De Niro, it's like. Here's this guy who's played these huge characters. The 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 it's like he's under a, you you have to watch everything under a microscope. It's so yeah. everything he does is so subtle yeah. and so and he's so present and you're just and it's it's just fascinating to watch them and it was funny too because I had heard an interview years ago yeah. with the person who was the son of the of the De Niro character telling their discovery of this yeah. story about this person yeah. and whether or not it's true or not. And it wasn't, and I had forgotten it. And then I'm halfway through the movie and realized that I was watching something that I knew about, you know, and I just had this like, oh shit, I know where this movie's going. Oh my God, I know where this movie's going. (laughs) Like it's, it's really good. I don't know if I put it in my top five, it's really hard, but it's, it's up there. I mean, it's, it's definitely, definitely up there. Yeah. It's because I mean, look, it's, it's him bringing Kaitel back into the fold and Kaitel doing such a great job with limited amount of screen time. The relationship between between Pacino and I'm sorry, between De Niro and Pesci yeah. is completely different. It's the first totally. time where Pesci is the alpha to De Niro's uh beta. And then uh, not that he's a beta male, but just that he's, you know, underneath Pesci. And then you throw in the Pacino relationship and this is way better. Look look oh God, again I'm going to get in trouble. I I like what we got with them in Heat, and you get one scene in the cafe and then one scene at the end. This is the movie to watch to enjoy Pacino oh, yeah. and De Niro on screen together. Their respect for each other as actors, their rhythm in the scenes. As an actor, I'm watching their rhythms in the scenes. Incredible. And at the end, you really feel such sympathy for Hoffa, who was a prick, and certainly Pacino plays him as a prick at times. So that when Den- when um, uh, his ca- Frank had does what he does, you actually feel the tragedy of it. Oh yeah, you know, and and that is built because of the relationship that Pacino and De Niro have with each other throughout the movie. You can tell they genuinely love each other as people. So that when the twist happens, like when Pacino- when De Niro gets mad that he thinks Pacino has offended him, or Hoffa's offended him, and he said, and he's like putting on his jacket. Oh no, Frank, come on! I don't mean you. Come on, come on, don't do. It is so honest and earnest and 
and terrible movie. It's just like upsetting. And because yes, in a movie where he's lying to a bunch of people about shit, he is genuinely ca- showing his care uh, for uh, for him, for De Niro throughout the movie. And it's it's great to watch, you know. So, yeah. I don't know if this is actually from Aristotle's poetics, but I feel like mm-hmm. it is. But that tragedy is like the mix of, you know, it's it's the inevitability that makes the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see in that film is like you're heading to this yeah. direction and you see particularly the choices that Hoffa makes of yeah. like, no, please don't. Oh, no, you don't. You don't understand where yeah. you're heading. Yeah. And it's just you just feel it getting close. And it's just so horrible. Yeah. Watching this inevitability play out. Uh, and the ending moment is so sad. It's just sad, yeah. you know? Yeah. Once again, though, that's what the great ones do. Coppola did it. Um, and, 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 and Scorsese did it in Goodfellas as well. You know, like the end of Goodfellas is Ray Liotta saying, Henry Hill saying, you know, I, I eat uh, tomato sauce. Well, no, what is it? Ketchup and, and spaghetti. And, ketchup and noodles. Yeah, exactly. That's supposedly spaghetti. And the end of and in the end of um, Godfather, right? It's Michael sitting all alone. Yeah. Godfather Part Two sitting all alone uh, with the leaves going, essentially implying that he is, you know, he is a, 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 a what do you say, a leaf that's fallen off a tree. He's in the fall of uh, of his time. And the end of this movie is showing you, like, for all the things he accomplished, he ended up an old man in a nursing home. And this is a commentary on people who are getting older, including Scorsese. Yeah is this idea that we all have to come to terms with is the greatness of our youth, the greatness of our prime. We may end up in the end just kind of sitting there all alone as an old person and no one remembers us. No one um, uh, is there to tell our story. It's just at the end, we're just dying. <laughs> and so it's it's a really hard ending to accept as you're getting older as a person. It's it's all goes back to these explorations of moral codes that we've been talking about the whole in all these films. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. it's the gangster and the priest and the gangster and the priest have moral codes that they have to live by. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in these films, it's like you've got Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver who sees himself as the knight in shining armor. Right. And yet the things that he does, he's considering assassinating a presidential candidate. And then to save the damsel in distress, he goes and kills a whole bunch of people in this incredibly brutal scene. And it's like, okay, where is this? How do I feel about this? You know, Rupert Pupkin is destined to be the great comedian. And so there is nothing that he won't do. Right. You know, like we have in Goodfellas. Obeying the the code means killing a whole bunch of people and being a really horrible person. Right. And in in doing what I would consider be the right thing, which is turning in the bad guys, he's now violated the moral code. Yeah. Casino has all of these all of these oh, yeah. codes of yeah. how Ace is supposed what he's supposed to be doing, and then he makes everything public. Therefore, he has to be destroyed. And then Pesci, you know what happens to him? Like it's all dealing with the same thing. And here we have in the Irishman is this dude who obeyed the co- the quote unquote yeah. code. Mm-hmm. And that leaves him alone in in this old folks home. Yeah, you know, without and, the love of his daughter, who he yeah. most wants. Yeah, and having killed this guy that he really cared about. Yeah, that was his friend. Right, because he obeyed the moral code. It's a commentary on adhering to these things. Should you adhere to these things? Because in the end, you're going to lose everybody you love anyway. You know. Oh, well, that was depressing. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I love about the movie. He, he it's a '70s aesthetic within the film. Even though it's a massively epic, a massive epic film, he's got a '70s aesthetic ending, and I yeah. love that about the Irishman. Which brings us to Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm. So, I think it's funny. It first of all, it is exactly what we've said throughout, even about the movies that we didn't like as much. Yeah. This is an 
unbelievably beautifully made film. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I honestly was never bored in the theater. Uh, I saw it with Shannon McClung, who did leave at least twice to pee, but I did not. <laughs> See, that tells you the difference. That tells you. The um, I think the performances are spectacular. Yeah. I think it is going to win Best Art Direction, or it should, because I've never seen a, a period piece that felt more convincing to me than this movie did. Wow. It just felt like this is the real place. Right. I, I think it, I was involved in the story. Yeah. And I don't like this movie. And I have a theory of why I don't like it. It's it's not, I wasn't bored. Right. But I don't, I just don't understand this movie. I, I want to hear your thoughts and then I'll give you my theory. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I spoke about it on on the hot mic, Jeff and I. Jeff and I broke it down uh, um, in a review there if you want to hear more of my thoughts because we're in a consolidated amount of time. So here's what I'll tell you. I, 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 can, I respect the filmmaking within the film itself. Um, I think there are some scenes that I would have never seen. I also think this is the filmmaker that got this story told, so you have to give respect to that. But... I think Leonardo DiCaprio is horribly miscast in this role. It should have been Jesse Plemons playing that role and DiCaprio playing the FBI agent. It bothers me that he switched roles when he found out when he, when they rewrote it and they made uh, that DiCaprio role bigger, he decided to then switch roles from the FBI agent to that role. So Jess, Jesse got the other role and I, you know, you get it. Jesse's still building. So it's, you take it. It's a Scorsese and he puts you in fucking Irishman. Uh, so you take it. Um, I think Lily Gladstone is a marvel in the film yeah. and she's incredible up until the point where they drug her for the back half of the film and remove her as an impetus or remove her as an active part of the film, which is so frustrating when he told us he was rewriting the script so that it would be more from the Osage point of view, but the Osage point of view disappears within the first hour of the movie and then it becomes all about De Niro, who is incredible in the film. Great. De Niro and, DiCap and DiCaprio's story. So it becomes from the white point of view. And that, I, people have explained it to me a thousand ways to Sunday. I'm never going to accept it. That stupid radio play at the end I don't completely know. kills the movie as well. And so I think there was incredibly great intentions behind the film. But I also think this is an older filmmaker, an aging filmmaker, who maybe doesn't have that edge, that, the gutsiness and the edge that it would have had in the 1970s to really tell this story from the Native American point of view. Hire Native American writers, write Native American scenes, write Osage scenes. People go, it's not in the book. Oh, what a surprise. People, people go off from the book all the fucking time. That's, called, that's why it's a, it's a movie. It's not a book. And so he could have changed it to tell it more from her point of view, to give us more of an idea of the Osage culture, more of the Osage way of life. And so we saw more of their commentary on these white people coming in to take things from them rather than seeing it from a guy who was confused all the time about what he was doing and uh, was, was evil, but then supposedly still loved her. And so it just was, it just didn't work a hundred percent for me in the end. And I was supremely disappointed because I loved that first hour, you know? I, so I'll tell you what my theory is, mm. uh, which is, I think that Scorsese did the things that he normally does when making a film. And I think they worked against them in this case. Mm. And here's what I mean is when we did Wolf of Wall Street and we were talking about all the horrible things that these people characters were doing. Yeah. One of the things that came up was we both kind of went, oh, you know, we never see the victims. 
Mm. Like we don't see, it's not about that. It's about the criminals. It's about watching these people do these horrible things. Scorsese is not that interested in the victims because the same is true in Goodfellas. It's about watching the criminals. The same is true in Irishman. The same is true in, um, you know, like we meet Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, but it's really not about, we don't, we don't care. We're watching the criminal mind. And I feel like what happened in this film was first they started off with an FBI investigator. And they went, okay, but that's not really what the movies were going to center on the criminals, which is what Scorsese is good on. Right. But then they said, look, you you can't ignore these Native American people. We have to tell these stories. So they introduced more of the victims, but they didn't really have anything to do. Yeah. You know, and so what happened is that it, it, they, they, it made them incredibly passive. And yes. so, yes. The, and so the difference is, is that in Wolf of Wall Street, I'm not seeing the victims at all. Right. So I can just examine the criminal, the horrible people. Yeah. Same with Goodfellas. But here I'm looking at the victims, the whole movie. Right. And L- Lily Gladstone in particular, I am in love with her. And I think she is fascinating. And then she, as you said, is drugged for an hour of the movie yeah. and is doing nothing. And all of the other native people who I think are beautifully cast. And there was obviously lots of research and it felt very real and very grounded, yeah. but they don't fucking doing anything. And we don't have a sense of what this feels like from their perspective because the movie's not about them the movie's about the criminals and so what happens is you have the 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 criminals which is that's his strong suit yeah but because you've shown us the victims a lot i can't have fun with the criminals or even really be involved in the story because and this is where i just go i agree with you this was not the right story to tell they needed someone needed to tell the story of the osage people and how it felt for them and maybe scorsese isn't the right filmmaker to tell that story because he's He's about the criminals. He's about exploring the, the the dark parts of the human character. And so that's why I go like, literally, I could point to hundreds of shots that are gorgeous and incredible performances throughout the whole thing. And like I said, I wasn't bored, Yeah, but I don't think it's a good movie. Yeah, and I've seen some people push back. Well, this Osage person said they liked it. Yeah, and there are plenty of Osage people who say they didn't, including the technical advisor on the red carpet who said, you know, we just kind of have to accept this uh this is a step forward, but you know, it's not really told from the Osage point of view, but it's getting there. So you see that there are, you know, what a surprise. This is nothing's a monolith. No one's a, no group of people are a monolith. So yes, you can see people that liked it and didn't like it within the Osage community. So both points of views are valid about this movie. And so that's where I come back to when people try to push back on the criticism of it, because I'm not coming from the place of like, this movie shouldn't exist. This was terrible. He was the wrong person to tell it. It was more that he told the movie from the wrong point of view. We've seen the white occupier. That is nothing new. We've got to see it from the occupied point of view and take the chance to watch a whole movie where Native Americans are denigrating the white people who have take, come in to try to take things from them. That's the movie that you should have told. It doesn't mean there couldn't have still been good white people. Certainly the FBI coming in to explore. This is what began the FBI. This is the case that started the FBI coming in and exploring this, you could have had that so that you've got all these points of views rummaging through. I didn't give a shit about finding out more about Ernest and stuff with De Niro. Like, I really give a shit about it because he was an incomplete uh, um, protagonist in the film because he, he, one second, he's like too stupid to understand what he's doing. The next second, he's influenced. And the other second, he's, you know, uh, drugging his wife the whole time but still claiming that he loves her. It was ridiculous. I don't give a shit about a, a, a limited intelligent guy as a protagonist in a story like this. I've seen it many, many times. 
Let me see it from the, the from the Osage point of view. And as I said, they should have brought in Native American writers, should have brought in Native American um, uh, uh, technical advisors to to make this happen. There were there were Native American technical advisors, but advisors that said to Marty and Marty listening, "Hey, don't do this." And the truth is, Marty doesn't have a great record telling stories about people of color. He doesn't. He tells stories from white point of view or the Italian point of view. Even in gangs in New York, when you see all of a sudden black people being killed in the race riots or the voting race riots, you're like, where the fuck were black people for three hours of the movie? Like it just, it doesn't does he doesn't spend the time that he needs to spend. And it may just be because he doesn't feel like he's the person to tell the story because he's not of that uh, community. And I totally respect that. But throwing it in, I think, loses its effect because you haven't done enough to establish it. And I think in this in this film, he does kind of a version of that by establishing the Osage culture and then completely abandoning it for the final two hours of the movie, which is super frustrating. You know? it, it, it's really, I think, so first of all, I'm not of the belief that only a person of a certain group mm. can make a film about that group. Mm. I, I think it is certainly possible for respectful people to learn about other cultures or other situations and sure. make movies about a lot of different stuff, sure. you know, and there are movies that both you and I love that fall into those categories. Right. Color purple. Steve yeah. Work. Incredible yeah. job. Yeah. West Side Story. Yeah. Like, West Side uh, Story. The, yeah. The tons of them. But, but I also think that Martin Scorsese in particular, part of his greatness is who he is and where he comes from. His right. own identity is an Italian American child of immigrants like that. That is part of where his greatness comes from. Yeah. And so, him doing something about Native Americans is not um, suited to his particular greatness in his talent. Mm. That's the first thing I think. Yeah. The other thing I think is that, you know, like there's the Bechtel test of having, you know, it does the movie have two women talking to each mm. other about a thing that's not a man. There were all sorts of com conversations that happened among the Osage people yeah. that were fascinating that were not in this movie that happened at this time during this event. Yeah. When you have that many people dying around you or getting sick around you, right. they're going to have a conversation yeah. and they never happen in the film. Like we just don't sit with them and go, what does it feel like? This is an amazing question to me. What does it feel like to be a people that have been conquered and pushed around and messed with and poor and then suddenly become extremely wealthy? What does that feel like? And then what does it feel like to have this organization come in and take away your power to control your own life? All those scenes where they had to go to the doctor hmm. to decide if they could spend their money or to, you know, whatever the, yeah. the executor of their trust or whatever, that's all totally fucking bizarre. Yeah. But we don't really go into, we see that it happens, but we don't go into their world. We don't hear them talking about yeah. what do we do about this? What, how do we change? How do you know, we, you know, we see the alcoholic, but we don't see the alcoholics family and like, Hey, how are we going to, you know, this is a real problem in our community. We don't see them making active choices. They're completely passive through the whole film. And you know that they, those humans were not completely passive. They were making choices. They did have thoughts. They did have ideas. They didn't just sit and let it all happen to them. But that's kind of what you see in the movie. Yeah. He, in a way he, does the thing that he said he wasn't going to do, which is to essentially marginalize Native Americans within their yeah. own story. And it's unfortunate. And again, I don't think it's, I don't want to believe it's intentional because here's the thing that also kind of bothers me. And I know, we don't want to end on an overall ne negative note about Scorsese is that De Niro, when accepting his award recently, I think for the New York film critics or one of these places, one of these uh, East Coast um, bodies, his speech denigrating the white occupation of Native American lands Apple tried to censor his speech. Yeah. 
And score and De Niro was like, fuck you, and delivered his speech as he had written it, because he had written it, and they took it off the teleprompter to, to make him deliver a more safer speech. That tells me that Apple has been trying to control this thing from the beginning to make it more from the white point of view than the Native American point of view, because they're afraid that white people won't watch it or white people won't like that kind of thing. Because certainly we've seen here in our politically fraught times that anything that denigrates white people there's a massive part of the political sphere that call goes after it and so maybe apple felt like this wasn't um the approach to take but in the end the film didn't make that much money and certainly it was done for prestige purposes so the intention wasn't necessarily to make a lot of money but still it could have been i don't think it's a film that people are overwhelmingly wanting to see win best picture like you see for the holdovers or oppenheimer or even barbie for god's sake so i think that's kind of a commentary on the approach and you know look scorsese is an older filmmaker who wants to make the films he wants to make but a filmmaker is always subject to the amount of money he can make or he can get to make a film and maybe apple said okay you can make some changes don't make massive changes to tell it from the fully from the osage point of view i don't know that's just me speculating you know i i, I find that apple thing shocking and i think i said to you at the time i i i want to know where that came from Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that come from the producer of the show? Did that come from Tim Cook? Did that come from the board? Did that come? And I also go, I, I, I strongly doubt that Apple put much editorial control on the making of that film. They brought in, they brought in Scorsese. I, I strongly doubt it, but I, I, I really don't know. Yeah. I, I, and neither do I, and neither yeah. do I, just my own personal point. Well, the other thing, I don't think that Scorsese is necessarily at his best making a $230 million movie or something like it, it was really big budget. Yeah. I don't think that's his sweet spot, even though the movie looks amazing. Yeah. But I also agree with you that I do not want to end on a down note. Yeah. So I, I do want to say, first of all, I'm going to repeat it because it's important to say that movie's beautifully made top yes. to that guy knows how to make movies and and i think that in having watched a bunch of scorsese movies over the last several weeks that's what struck me over and over again was two things one is he's going to follow what he is interested in Hmm. and two is that guy knows how to make movies yeah you know what are you what are you what are you i'm not going to ask your final thoughts on (laughs) scorsese because that's ridiculous and we're also going to spend the next couple of months yeah and even even a revisit in easter apparently like going into this guy but but at this moment what are you what are you most looking forward to on our deep dives of goodfellas and raging bull and last temptation of christ and what are your what what are your overall feelings about scorsese as a filmmaker well i think i'll take the first well it's like the second part first and that is that for me i i just as I said earlier, I don't recall an existence when I loved film and didn't know about Martin Scorsese. And still, to this day, still talking about Martin Scorsese, still revering Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker, flaws and all, I think is a great place to be in. There are the rare filmmakers that make it over multiple decades, and he has. And still creating masterpieces, the Irishman was not that many years ago. At an advanced age, that's even rarer for great filmmakers to still be able to create films at that level. And so to me, what it is, is that Martin, what it, what Martin Scorsese means to me is this is a, an incredible filmmaker that has been successful in multiple different types of films and has asked us questions about ourselves, asked us questions about our worlds, um, uh, taken us down these really interesting paths and tricked us at times, like with Goodfellas, we fall in love with these characters, but then at the end we see what happens as the result of the lives they've chosen. And that's really what a lot of his films are, are cautionary tales. Cautionary tales about our existence. And so I love that these are the films 
that Marty is drawn to, to create these fantastic thought provoking pieces of cinema that we can revisit multiple times at different times of our, of our lives and fall in love with it for the first time or fall in love with it again and get so much out of it as a commentary on the human condition. They're not just gangster films as people like to stereotype them, or they're not just, you know, shoot 'em up films or violent films. There's a lot of commentary about humanity. And I think that comes from Marty's sensitive nature, Marty's upbringing around his family, Marty's upbringing in the church. There's a lot of that coursing through his movies because he is constantly searching for the meaning of existence and constantly searching to tell you stories about humans in these situations that he knows very well. And to answer your first question, I am very much looking forward to breaking down these movies and talking about the minutia of how he constructs scenes, how he shoots certain things, the camera angles, the lighting, the score, how they're la- the music cues are laid in through certain scenes. And as Steve mentioned multiple times here, how he finds the humor amongst this drama, amongst this madness of what's going on in these movies, I think is going to be fun to revisit and explore and how he works with actors and the performances that these actors deliver. Some of them delivering, not delivering better performances in their careers before or since because of how he works with them. So all of that, I'm really interested. And to hear your points of views on it as a filmmaker yourself, to hear what what stands out for you, because I always learn so much when I hear your points of views as a filmmaker, because I always look at it from the acting and the overall effect and the symbolism. I always appreciate the technical uh, approach you have with it, along with all the other stuff, screenwriting and acting and and what have you. So yeah, I'm looking forward to all that as we break these films down in the future. Well, first of all, thank you. And of course, I love that. That's why these conversations are so much fun, because I love hearing your opinions as we break this stuff down. I'm excited because we did Goodfellas. I think maybe it was like an hour and a half that we talked about it the first time or that's hour crazy. and 10 minutes that's or something like crazy. that. Well, and that's why I go like, I can't wait to really yeah. look at the moments because that's what we didn't in our early episodes. We didn't really look at the that moment. Mm. And the thing is, I haven't watched Raging Bull in a while. It's mm. been at least a decade, yeah, yeah. and I, I love the film, but I've never really thought about it, if that makes oh. sense. I've experienced okay. it, okay, but I have not thought about it in <sighs> filmmaking, and now going through, I'm we're going to really get into the stuff, yeah. and so it's going to be, re- I think it's going to be really challenging, because, spoiler alert, I uh, Goodfellas I love, yeah. it's not emotional for me the way that Raging Bull is. Yeah. Raging Bull hurts. It yep. is a it is a, it is a, it is a painful it's it's a lot to deal with in terms of emotion. Yeah. Um so and to go just my feelings about Scorsese in general, I'm going to say a weird thing which is he's not one of my favorite directors. Oh. And what I mean by that is that if you go like which whose movies you want to go watch? Well, I'll watch Steven Spielberg movies all the time. They're all sorts of directing, you know what I mean? Like mm. like and I don't think I would put any of his films, certainly not in my top five films of all time, and probably not in my top 10 films of all time. I think that Martin Scorsese might be the greatest auteur director of all time. Mm. I think he might be the greatest person who is pursuing his vision, his mm. particular vision. Yeah. Maybe up there with Kubrick would be the other one who's sort of, of uh, uh, you know, it's like, I'm going to make my films. And I find his films to be difficult sometimes, Mm. to be uncomfortable sometimes, to be like, take me into a world that I don't really want to be in that world. You know, like, I don't feel good in Taxi Driver. I don't feel good in Goodfellas. I don't feel good in King of Comedy or Casino. I know I'm not going to feel good in Raging Bull. You know, like, these are movies that are 
difficult yeah. that bring you into a world that isn't that's why I go like when I say he's not my favorite director it's not that I don't think he's a great director I absolutely do it's that he's not my favorite you know what I mean like what he does you yeah, yeah, yeah because it's going to be hard it's going to be it's going to be and that's why I say it's the auteur this is his way of looking at the world this is what he sees when he looks at the human condition yeah. and he's going to force you to go look at things maybe even within yourself that you're not going to be comfortable with. You know, the hard part about Travis Bickle is not going, there's these crazy people out there who are like this. The hard part about Travis Bickle is that when you go, shit, I felt like Travis Bickle. Mm. That's the hard part about it. Mm. And the same, and the it's the romance in Goodfellas. All my life, I wanted to be a gangster. Right. The hard part about it is that you like it. That's the hard part about right. it. Like that's, that, and that's throughout his movies, with his great movies always, it's like the hard part about rewatching King of Comedy now is I felt a lot like Rupert Pupkin. I've been fucking Rupert Pupkin. I mean, I'm not, but but like I re related to that. That's the hard part. So that's that's my feeling. Great, so, great words, brother. So that is at least the beginning of our exploration of the life and films of Mr. Martin Scorsese. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear which are your favorite films. We'd love to hear which movies did you have to come back to at a later time to get a better sense of them? Which movies kind of left you cold? What did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? Which movies are you excited about taking a look at that maybe you've never seen? And of course, we can't wait to get into our breakdowns of Goodfellas, of Raging Bull, and our Easter special on The Last Temptation of Christ. And of course, if you want to reach us, you can follow us on, on Facebook, do a search for The Cinephiles, Cine underscore files on Twitter, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, all the other places like Spotify or YouTube. On YouTube, please leave your comments. On Apple Podcasts, we would love to get your reviews. Five stars if you feel we're worth it. Maybe a lesser number if you feel we don't. If you want to leave that one-star review where you swear at us and say we're horrible people, you're allowed to do that too, but they're not as much fun for us to read. Um, but if you want to buy or stream, I'm going to do the same thing that we've done for all these other directors. I'm going to create a, a page on our website that's going to have all these films, I think. It's going to be a lot of pages. If you want to buy or stream anything Martin Scorsese's ever done, you can do so at cinephiles.net. If you want to support the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can ask, actually, if you support us at the right tier, you can ask questions that will appear in our upcoming breakdowns of Goodfellas, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ. We love those questions. That's patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says. We can see all my shows that I have there, the Hot Mic, the Geek Buddies, uh, the Jedi Way, and my reviews and reactions, and my other podcasts, uh, the Hot Mic and the Geek Buddies are out there for you all to subscribe to and enjoy. And I think that's it for this week. We're going to be back next week with part one of Goodfellas as we enter the season of Martin Scorsese.